Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark, and this episode has been a long time in the making. I initially reached out to guitarist Jeff Young well over a year ago, but the timing was never right. Well, once the timing was right, we made up for lost time. Jeff and I had an epic discussion about his first exposure to listening and playing music. He took viola lessons in the first grade. He recounts the BB gun trade that literally changed his life. He moved from Dayton, Ohio to Hollywood to seriously pursue music. And after many false starts, he was about ready to give up and move back to Ohio when he had his first encounter with Megadeth. But it wasn't his gig yet. Jeff is honest about his time in Megadeth and why he left the band. His want ad on Headbangers Ball right after he left. Signing with Diamond Dave Management, but passing on being Steve Vai's replacement for David Lee Roth's band, which led to Jason Becker getting the gig, for which Jeff is extremely happy. But after a while, Jeff did leave music and went to the Wharton School for Business to help save the family business. But a wild series of events got him back into music, playing Farm Aid, and hanging with Willie Nelson as a tour bus, and eventually moving to Brazil to play with members of the legendary Asagi family. Now Jeff has a lot of irons in the fire, including the band with his better half called Tennifer Gin, his YouTube channel Music Lives Live, the streaming show he's done for over 11 years, Music Without Boundaries, and a mega new project that is in the works. Follow Jeff at Jeff Scott Young on Twitter, at Jeff Young Guitar on Instagram, follow us at Performance ANX on both, and you can support us with reviews or with money on ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety or performanceanx.threadless.com. Now buckle up for an epic mega episode with Jeff Young on Performance Anxiety on Pantheon Podcasts. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Hello there, ladies and gents. Jeff Young here, guitarist, sometime DJ, and be sure to uh, subscribe to my brand new YouTube show, Music Lives Live web show on YouTube. Right now you're listening to Performance Anxiety. I kind of like this show. Is that AID cool? Well, man, well, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I, I'm really excited about it. A little nervous, but excited. 
Well, it's my pleasure. Are we taping yet, or are you going to edit this? How's it go? Oh, I'm, I'm taping, and I'll edit it. Beautiful. I'm ready to go when you are. I'm going to take, take a sip of water. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me. Like I told you before, this is just really exciting. One of the, you're one of the ones I've, I'm a little nervous about. I know, I've always just loved what I've heard from of your music, and, and your history is just wild. And just kind of want to know a little bit more about how you got into music in the first place and, and what you're up to currently. So how did you get into music in the first place? What music really influenced you when you were little? What, what made you really get into music? Was it something that your parents were playing? Was it something that you discovered on your own? Well, I do remember the first LP that my folks bought me was the Beatles. I think it's called the 65 album. It might be an amalgamation of hits from their other records. But I remember that pretty early on. So I was exposed to a little rock pop. But honestly, the the impetus of, of it all, if you will, was when they came around in first grade with the stringed instruments for the orchestra. Oh, wow. First grade. And yeah, I, I chose viola. So I started playing viola in first grade, but it wasn't long <laughs> into our orca orchestra rehearsals that I was looking across the room and lusting after that big cello and the sound that was coming <laughs> out of that thing. You had cello in Exactly. There's probably some little girl playing it. So I went home, begged my mother on bended knees to, uh, <laughs> to let me switch from viola to, viola to cello. And I, I think keenly she intuited that if that were to happen, she would end up being the designated cartage service for said cello. <laughs> <laughs> Running me to and fro, taking me here and there. And I don't think she was game for that. So... Uh, she denied that <laughs> um, that request, and I got a little bit frustrated as a result, and I gave up the viola. Oh, wow. Much to my chagrin, I wish I would have stuck with it longer because, you know, and we can come back full circle. I mean, I did use it on a, a recent track on my new instrumental album that's being released one track at a time. I brought an amazing cellist in and I got to kind of live vicariously uh, <laughs> through her, through, the, through this song. I got to, you know, bring the guitar and the, the cello together, but we can talk about that in a bit. So yeah, yeah. my first instrument was viola. And then in th third grade, they came around with more of the band instruments, horns and, you know, tubas and trombones and flutes and piccolos and, Something spoke to me about the tenor saxophone. Oh, wow. So that I did start playing from third grade. And I played that third through eighth grade. And in fact, in ninth grade, we lost our baritone sax player. Uh, the girl who sat right next to me. Okay. Parents moved. So the uh, band, <laughs> the band director coaxed me into switching from tenor to baritone, which meant I had to learn, you know, tenor, everything's written in treble clef. Okay. Baritone is written in bass clef, so I had to read a whole new 
style of music, but that was cool. And I think uh, it kind of put me in the uh, frying pan. Right. <laughs> right. So to speak. And honestly, just because I have a, a few beginning guitar students and uh, it's, it's interesting that I'm really appreciating having that opportunity because some of their complaints is like when they play with other people or, or even try to play with a metronome, they have a real uh, bear of a time. And I think, you know, when you start playing at a young age and you have a band conductor and you're playing in a, in a, either an orchestra or a band setting of, you know, 25, 30 more people, it does teach you, you know, all the basic, the rudiments, uh, the basics of rhythm, how to play in time, how to read music. That always helps. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of great music is only written in manuscript. It's not tabbed out as, as we use in right. modern times. You wouldn't believe the number of people I've had on the podcast who said they stopped. They, they didn't get into a school, a music school or something, because for their entire careers they were faking reading music they're playing it by ear and then when it came time to audition for schools they were like oh i guess i'm done i can't read this so reading music is important when did guitar really take hold of you when did you want to start when, when did the desire to play hit you and how long after that were you actually playing guitar well you got to remember i grew up during the 70s and uh little show called the partridge family ah yes david cassidy much maligned and underrated i mean as a singer i mean he had quite the the rock and roll career aside from that oh for sure that primetime family oriented show but i mean that gave us a context as kids of what it was like playing in more of a rock pop band as opposed to you know what i was seeing you know, when I went to school yeah, right? and even I took mu music theory courses and all of that is geared more towards orchestral instruments. And although I did arrange, I remember uh, yesterday by the Beatles for like strings, like cello, viola, and I forget what oh, the wow. bass and violin. That was one of our assignments that we had to do. But so that the television set gave us that context. I missed Ed Sullivan. I, I saw some of that stuff, but I don't remember the Beatles or right. any of that stuff. But I definitely remember the, the Partridge family and, and some other shows, H.R. Puff and stuff had a little bit uh -oh. of a musical. Yeah, <laughs> I remember had that. A musical bent to it. Those guys, whoever wrote that were definitely... Uh, Sid and Marty Croft. Yeah, they were partaking in some herbal essence I oh would, yeah <laughs> I, I would fathom well i mean just that name it has to be mm -hmm. <laughs> so but it's actually a funny story it's around age 14 which must have been i'm not sure if if i uh was still playing tenor sax or baritone by this time and he coaxed me back for another year i forget the the series of events, but my buddy who lived down the street, his name's Matt Cecil. Shout out to my buddy. <laughs> he happens to tune in. We were childhood friends from sixth grade. So it wasn't too many years later that he decided he was going to play guitar. 
And in tandem, I looked through the local paper and bought myself a BB gun. Remember the Daisy? Oh yeah. Brand? Daisy brand. B. I mean, think of how, how safe can, I mean, they can't even play darts anymore. I remember darts. Yeah. Just <laughs> throw a big dart up in the air until one kid's left. Yeah, we all lived. Yeah. Tell about it. <laughs> you try to get in that little hula hoop thing. Those yeah. Great. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. That's betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. So my my buddy's playing guitar. I have this gun and, you know, I'm <laughs> shooting bottles and targets. And, you know, I, I couldn't shoot an animal, to be honest. And that's what all my buddies were doing. <laughs> and it wasn't a month or two after he got that guitar that I went down to his house one day and looked around his room. And I'm like, hey, buddy, where's your guitar? <laughs> And he opened the, his closet and it's like way in the back of his closet. <laughs> oh, I'm like, yeah, I'm a little bit shocked. And what's up with that? My friend, he's, ah, that thing's too damn hard to play. And a light bulb went off in my head. And uh, I mean, this was a cheap guitar. It was one of those probably $30, $40 numbers from Sears or Kmart that, yeah. The pick guard looked like a old Fender medium guitar pick. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. a, there a ton of guitars in the seventies with that pick guard. Yes. Every 30, $40 guitar had that pick guard. I know exactly what you're talking about. So I said, well, how about this? I'll trade you. I'll trade you my Daisy BB gun for your 30, $40 guitar. with." <laughs> with the gaudy pick guard and he's he he was like sold you know and it was a done deal so wow. that was 14 years old and i remember the the first thing i did is i had this it was a reel to reel tape machine i don't remember the brand and like the cover had been lost but it worked <laughs> yeah. and somehow i figured if i plug this guitar into there you know i had a amplification Albeit there was no 
what we call today in the business overdrive or gain or distortion, but I was making sound and you know, you're 14 and you're on your way. So I remember the first things I was figuring out was of course, all the old standbys smoke on the water, (laughs) uh, only on the low string. And I hadn't figured out that it was plucked with, you know, fingers on the, D and G string yet. I hadn't yeah. sussed that out. <laughs> I remember Stairway to Heaven, the intro, trying to get that. And I had the gist of it, but there's that one jazz chord, this, like the fourth chord where you shift position that I wasn't getting at 14. And I hadn't had any guitar lessons yet. This was just doing by ear. Oh, wow. Doing by ear off records. And, and then more than a feeling by Boston. So that maybe gives you the, I mean, that was right out on the radio. So that maybe puts you in a time capsule back to where, uh, where, where it all began. Right. It sure does. And the funny thing is from those three songs, I was just, I was on it. I was locked and loaded and all about it, obsessed and spending every spare moment on the guitar and the saxophone, sadly, sadly, <laughs> lying, lying, lonely in the case. Too many oh. afternoons after school. And Should have tried to trade somebody another BB gun for it. Yeah, yeah for the sax. I <laughs> yeah. wish I still had that sax. But, but check it out. The funny part, I mean, this has got to be in my book, and I often tell this story because it's just so epic. So... I don't know about your school, but our school and many schools and the, uh, I was class of, uh, 80 when I got out of high school, but talent shows, do you remember talent shows? I mean, for yes. that high school musical, the movie that my kids love so much yeah. as kids, I think they outgrew, but very much like that in our school. Okay. In, uh, Centerville, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, little suburb. And so our band always played in the pit the school band was down in the pit and we would play during switchovers from, I mean, there could be comedy acts juggling. I mean, what are kids that age going to do? I mean, there's a little bit, a little bit of everything and not a whole lot of quality. Right. If I had to relive it, (laughs) but I, I remember a few cool things I did. I did do one year something with about Charlie Chaplin, where me and my buddy wrote a skip, and I was Charlie Chaplin and in a park, I stole his newspaper and that came off really good in the talent show, but let's <laughs> nice. fast forward that. But I digress to fast forward this year. I was going to play guitar for my first time on stage in public and go, I'd be going back and forth. That meant I'd be playing in the pit on the saxophone and then ducking out at a certain point, like a song before, and then going up and doing my little bit and getting off. And I remember what I was going to do was Peter Frampton, because Frampton Comes Alive had just come out and that was all the rage. Baby, I love your way. I mean, and that would have been cool. And I had it down and I had the guitar down and I had the vocal down. Unfortunately, my voice decided it was going to change. Right? Oh. My voice started changing, so I couldn't. There was no way that I was going to sing it. And I had sung all through school and been in plays all of a twist and whatnot oh wow i opted to just play so i made a medley and i I don't know how i came up with this probably because it's 
the hottest songs that I had just learned. It was some kind of a awkward medley of <laughs> Toys in the Attic and Freebird. Oh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's instrumental. Just like instrumental, I'm just playing highlight riffs, rhythms from both <laughs> songs, and somehow I morphed them together, and that was... That was my first time on stage. That is awesome. Oh, I wish I could hear that. Yeah, I got a picture of it. I I, I don't uh, have any audio. Uh, you know, cell phones were a little bit shy back then. And yeah. Not even a lot of people had the home movie cameras and whatnot. Right. But that was the beginning. So the the funny part about the whole thing is my band conductor, and his name was Mr... I know his name was Mr. Freeman, but my mind, the first name that always comes to my mind is Mr. Finkum, because <laughs> this cat was a rat fink. Oh. Right in front of the whole class, in front of the whole class, one day, you know, we had band class was a period out of your seven periods in a day. You know, if you played an instrument, that was one of your, your periods that you would have. Right. Where you'd attend that. And I remember one day... <laughs> in pre-production for the the talent show the the teacher one of the teacher whoever was the director of the whole shebang came in she politely stuck her head into the band class and said jeff jeff young we need you on the stage to that as i stood up i put my sacks down i started collecting my things and mr finkum in front of the whole class he shamed me he said jeff Jeff Young, what are you doing? And I said, well, I have to go. I have to go rehearse really quick my song. I'll be right back. And, you know, I was fully intending to come right back and rejoin our uh, regular, regularly scheduled, regularly scheduled school programming. Right. Mm -hmm. Already in progress, but <laughs> I, I was just going to run out and do that. It would have taken five, 10 minutes. Jeff Young. You care more about that guitar than you do about your saxophone anymore. You should just give up that saxophone and go make love to that thing. Whoa. I mean, think of the era. Like, I mean, maybe you'd see that in a movie yeah. today or maybe yeah. the way people talk to each other. But back then that was like, I'd never heard anything like that or seen in a movie or heard right. a fellow student tell me anything like that. So I promptly told him to fuck off in front of the whole class, which then the first, the, the first response to what he said was everyone was aghast. Right. right. <gasps> and then when I said that, everyone busted out laughing and, and you know, kind of lightened the mood, to be honest. He was like, all right, I, I deserve that. And I, and I owe you apology. I probably shouldn't have said that. Cause then he probably realized like, I'm going to tell my parents. And yeah, I don't know if I ever did tell my parents and I don't think I, that he ever got in trouble as, as he well should have for that. Yeah. Oh but God. I did take his advice and I gave up the sax and wow. I've been making love to the guitar. Ever since. <laughs> mm -hmm. for, all right. So you started out at 14. When did you start playing in bands? Like pretty soon thereafter. Okay. My friend wasn't, wasn't long after. As a matter of fact, the kid who played trumpet in our school band 
also played drums and guitar and he'd already figured out a bunch of van halen stuff oh wow and I, I would i was going by that time i was getting and i'd probably done some other silly bands before that that where no one could really play but i remember this this band we named we dubbed iron cross oh and it's nice. funny there's a band now called iron cross i'm like why are you iron <laughs> And the, the other buddy was his neighbor who played bass, and he was really into Michael Anthony, Frank Churko, and Tom Thigerson was the the trumpet player. And so we showed each other. I, I was figuring out Zeppelin and Aerosmith stuff, and Yes, and oh, nice. I was just getting into Van Halen. You know, you remember like they kind of came in. There was a lot of the bands before Jethro Tull. I was in to their stuff and some of the proggy stuff just anything that was cool and then disco hit and then van halen and i was just getting on board with that and they were already kind of of ahead of me but he knew i was a better guitar player so he showed me what he knew of the van halen and he got behind the drums and we had a trio with no singer oh wow a ton of van halen you know <laughs> aerosmith off the first album lord of the thighs stuff like that oh yeah so that was that was my first band and we played school dances and keg parties i remember that you know before the football games on friday nights they'd have uh, out at this lodge bear creek lodge they'd have uh, keg parties and we always seemed to end up playing there and my buddy who didn't play an instrument he he was the neighbor to Matt Cecil who traded me that first guitar, Bob Ellis. Oh, wow. He figured out how to do the concussion mortars because we were all starting to get into Kiss too, right? Oh, yeah. And so we, <laughs> we had the explosions at the keg parties with Salt Peter. What was it? Salt Peter and something else. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and uh, and he had the two by fours and 10 cans nailed to him and he had all the powder in there and we had it all rigged with stuff that we used to make uh, our Estes rockets launch. So <laughs> we were ahead of our time. Wow. I got to tell you. But it, it was actually, some, you know, wild memories because you, it was kind of cool because I was in with the jocks and the freaks because I was a musician, but the jocks were the ones putting on the keg parties for the football games yeah. and they needed us to play. So that was nice. always cool. That was a cool thing in school. And I know that's why a lot of kids get into comedy. I've heard comedians say the same thing. Like, you know, that's why I got into comedy. Yeah. Because you know, I, I wouldn't get picked on in school or beat up. And yeah, maybe it's the same for some of us musicians. That's a very interesting parallel. I didn't think about it like that. At what point did you think that this is something you wanted to pursue professionally? Because you, you did study at GIT. So when did it hit you that, oh, this, this is what I want to do? Oh, remember when I told you about watching the Partridge family? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, of course, then, I mean, we, uh, we wanted, I had the David Cassidy haircut. Oh, nice. Found the most David Cassidy shirts that I could find. <laughs> so, yeah, but you know, at that age, you're playing around and it's not serious and you kind of come back and forth between sports and music and yeah. girls and whatever distractions. Yeah, exactly. Like BB guns or Estes <laughs> rockets, dirt bikes, go-karts, all that stuff. Yeah. But I think once I bought Kiss, I remember once I figured out there was no Santa Claus, my mom 
started letting me just like pick out my presents. We'd go shopping, but then she just hide them away and wrap them. And then I'd open them. You know, you wouldn't always remember what you got and right. what shape things were. And I remember coming to the car with Kiss Alive one in hand. And she took one look at that and her face went white, oh. you know, as white as their kabuki make. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, she's like, okay, here we go. Oh boy. Here we go. But she bought it for me. And I, I think it was on from there and Aerosmith and Zeppelin. I mean, it was that whole early hierarchy of, you know, iconic bands. Yes. Yeah. Jethro Tull. Led Zeppelin, all of them. And then the, the lesser bands, because I had buddies and bandmates that worked at record stores. So we knew all the cool music right when it came out. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it just went from there. And then you're playing cover bands, different cover band dates all over your town and mm -hmm. state and tri-state area. And before I moved to, you mentioned I uh, went out to GIT, Musicians Institute, we made it so far as the Knoxville World's Fair. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to Google what year that was. Knoxville, Tennessee, we opened for, our band was Black Widow. We were actually kind of heavy. By this time, we were covering like Iron Maiden, Murders in the Room More. Oh, nice. Plasmatics off Coup d'etat, Children of the Damned, just Saxon, Dallas 1 p.m., just like Riot, Swords and Tequila, plus all the... You know, Neon Knights. Oh, nice. All the heavy stuff that was popular with a female singer. I mean, oh, you know, that's we started cool. out doing Benatar Pretenders and bands like that. Yeah. And ended up giving our singer nodes on her vocal cords from screaming too much. Oh, Maybe my God. It was that screen and number the beast that she had to do every night. Oh, but, wow. Yeah. So, we evolved as music evolved and we discovered different genres and the different players that you hang around expose you to different music. Yeah. I mean, the first Def Leppard on through the night and high and dry were huge for us. Riot. We kind of were in that vibe. Like okay. Some Sabbath for, for a young band, but with a female singer, um, I'm going to put all this stuff out. I still have that demo. It was a four song demo. Oh, Wow. Yeah, that I have is a awesome. few. I'd love to. I'm actually talking to a couple companies right now. We'll see what what happens and how it finally sees the light of day. But that would be cool. Yeah. So she got nodes on her vocal cords, and then we found a singer from Cincinnati that this guy was amazing. He looked like Bon Scott, and he was like even missing teeth. Right. <laughs> His name was Richard Lewis. He's been playing with Randy Piper from Wasp for years. Really? Uh, Piper even moved to Cincinnati, Ohio because of this singer. Oh my he God. was my last singer in Ohio before I moved out to California. They had a band called Animal. Okay. And my guitar player from Black Widow, who's passed away, was in that original incarnation with Randy Piper and Animal, I think. Oh. I believe I kind of lost touch with the guys, but this guy was incredible. He could definitely do Blackie Lawless because he was like a mimic, like a rich little of vocals. We oh, went down cool. to see him one night in Cincinnati playing with his uh, cover band Prisoner and he on point singing Dio, both ACDC singers. Oh my gosh. Uh, Iron Maiden. And he sounded like, you know, when he would do the singer, he would change character and 
Cat was great. Wow. So right after that, get, you know, after a set, we walked up and snaked him. We had a booking <laughs> agent and but he had a drinking problem and oh. some other members of our band had substance abuse problems. And at that point I said, am I going to stay here in Dayton and just play cover tunes the rest of my life or refer to the final page of a recent guitar player magazine that had a profile of a little known school that was at the time above the Hollywood wax museum on Highland Boulevard, a stone's throw from uh, Hollywood and Highland. It was actually on Hollywood and Highland. And, uh, I read this one page article and I saw that Tommy Tedesco from the wrecking crew and Don mock and yeah. Scott Henderson oh. who was just a sick player. And I was already, you know, by this time starting to get into Alan Holsworth, UK and uh, stuff along those lines. So I was flipping out just, it took one page to sell me on that school. So ho whoever wrote that article, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Right. Yeah. Uh, read that. And, I remember after rehearsal one day, I went up and everyone was downstairs and probably smoking out after rehearsal yeah. and drinking beer. And I used to have a mirror in my drawer and my, you know, socks and t-shirts top drawer that I would watch my hands play while I rehearsed. And I was sitting there, I went straight up from rehearsal downstairs and started practice. And I just, something just struck me. I said, am I going to stay here in Dayton? you know, doing this, or am I going to go out to that school? And I begged my parents, beg, beg, begged. And the rest is history. Wow. Somehow I convinced them. Cause I mean, I, I didn't know anyone out here. I'm, I'm in Los Angeles now at the time. I didn't know anyone. And, you know, I was er in my early twenties by this time. And that's pretty scary. Yeah. I, I luckily there was a kid that, was a couple grades ahead of me that had just gone out to GIT and came back and was teaching guitar lessons at the local music store. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I decided, well, how about I'll sign up for some private lessons with him and get the curriculum ahead of time. I'll be way ahead of the game. <laughs> Turns out the guy he lived with in Van Nuys, which, you know, not far from where I live now, and this guy's my buddy to this day. He's, I'm looking at my private message. He just messaged me an hour ago. <laughs> I mean, which is a great thing to be able to say, you know, from 1984 till now, I moved in with this total stranger who, you know, cause my buddy had moved back to Ohio, was teaching guitar lessons. This guy out in California needed a roommate and he actually gave me the bedroom and took the living room as his bedroom. Oh, cause wow. it was a small place. I mean, I think our total rent at that time was like four seventy five. Oh, geez. <laughs> Harkening back to, uh, to yesteryear and more innocent times. For sure. Oh my gosh. Watercolor memory. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's, it's amazing. And I just happened to have my private messages up on Facebook and I see that he just messaged me in an hour ago. Oh, nice. Larry, as long as we're name dropping tonight, yeah. <laughs> he lives in uh, Portland now and he lived in Austin. He, he played guitar. He was a graduate of GIT and we lived together and we've been buddies. So he's seen every demo, every, everything I've done since GIT till. Oh, wow. Till this evening, 
<laughs> and, uh, he so right even now. heard stuff that's not out yet. Oh it's my gosh! Slated for summer release. Oh, and that is awesome. Stuff coming out. We got a song coming out next month. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about socks for a second. Why not? It's a music podcast. But I tried a pair of socks from Boldfoot and love them. I've only worn them once because my kids have stolen them. So in my household, that's the best endorsement I can give. And I guess it's fitting because the design I chose was Jailbait. Wait, Jailbird. The design I chose was Jailbird. I might keep that in. The socks are 100% American made and 5% of all proceeds go to veteran charities. It makes sense seeing that Boldfoot is a family and veteran owned company. They have a huge variety of styles. So check out boldfoot.com and buy some of the best socks you've ever slapped on your feet and help veterans while you're at it. That's boldfoot.com. So that, that takes us from 14 to 1984 when I'm <laughs> out here in Hollywood going to GIT. And so I'm assuming while you're at GIT, you're playing in bands while you're out there. Or are you concentrating well, on just studying? Um, no, actually, right before, you know, by the time I, I moved out there, I had dissected every Eddie Van Halen lick at half speed at, you know, 16. We figured out some of us as kids before YouTube and guitar trainers and cassette players that have all these different settings on them, which I did use by the time I went to GIT. But <laughs> before that, uh, I don't even know how I figured it out. I just did it to slow it down. And I didn't know the bonus was that when you slowed a turntable down from 33 to 16, mm -hmm. it, it sounds like quicksand, but it's a perfect octave lower if your turntable works well. Right. So it's the same notes, half speed. It sounds a little garbly, you know, yeah. an octave lower and that technology that we had to use at the time. But I mean, that's how I figured out eruption, Spanish fly. I spent four wow. months figuring out Spanish fly and oh all the Randy Rhodes stuff, all the Aerosmith. Yes. Everything that I've mentioned or, you know, that ever became a part of my early influence. That's how we did it. You know, we'd slow down the record, all of my cover band stuff to try to get the solos spot on. Okay. And I'd been through Eddie, Randy, and getting into Holesworth, and then Ingve came out. Oh, yeah. On the Alcatraz, No Parole from Rock and Roll, and that knocked my socks off. Not because I was already really into classical playing. I got a classical teacher at 16, as soon as I heard D, you know, oh, and yeah. Diary of a Madman, and yep. the stuff, you know, The Trees, Farewell to Kings. Yeah, oh, you know, classics. The songs that, all of our rock guys were bringing nylon string and classical or flamenco elements into rock music and fusing it. So I was on that and we had a great classical teacher in our town. He's still to this day, he goes around and teaches kids. He's oh, known wow. as the guitar man in Dayton, Ohio. He head of the guitar department at the university of Dayton. Oh, wow. Uh, so teaching college all the way down to young kids and he just loves guitars. So, That's you know, awesome. it's kind of an honor that I studied with. He's an artisan, you know, I think of, of guitar music and I, 
I really respect that. But when Angve came out, of course, that was next level, you know, playing classical motifs in Paganini and Bach licks at blinding speed. And it was also his tone on that album. I, I think to, even to this day was his best tone on that first Alcatraz album. Man, I haven't heard so that I was in a back while. at the turntable, skipping school. Yeah. The, <laughs> you know, eight hours, 14 hours a day. Just my made a mission. I think that album came out maybe six, four, six months before I moved to California that I was gonna figure out as much of that record note for note as I could. Oh like as an ear training exercise, but also to help getting my picking and chops together. And I, I was just I mean, that was at the forefront of the neoclassical shred movement. Yeah. You know, and the shrapnel records and Mike Varney was just busting out and Paul Gilbert was actually he arrived at GIT during my second half of my year. At the time it's now can you can do a four-year course there, but at the time it was like a one-year vocational school. Oh, okay. Like, you know, when you'd go to a technical school to learn how to be an electrician or something, it yeah. was a year. Yeah. It was like that, but every class was guitar in your hand, every class. You're not oh. learning history, social studies, algebra. Right, right. You know, it's all guitar and like a crash course. I have the books right behind me. From 84, I still can refer back to it. It's like, you know, five inches thick of... <laughs> material that serves you for a lifetime oh that is awesome so at this time were you writing your own music or were you just focusing more on playing covers or classical yeah from the time i was in black widow and then when we got that singer from cincinnati we changed our band to ravencraft which i always thought was a great band name yeah don't steal it anybody <laughs> <laughs> I've always been doing originals and I have a lot of demos throughout the years. Okay. So yeah, both. And, but the, the hardest thing to do was find, you know, when you're looking at bands and you're benchmarking, if you're figuring this stuff out off records and these are your heroes and the people you're looking up to Zeppelin and Aerosmith, you're looking for musicians that are like that bass players that are as good as John Paul Jones or Tom Hamilton or Chris Squire and singers that are as good as Steven Tyler or Robert Plant and or Roger Daltrey. And those are few and far between. Oh, for sure. Again, even at GIT, we didn't have a singer. Our band was a bass player from BIT, Bass Institute, oh. a percussionist, a drummer from the PIT Percussion Institute of Technology. At the time, there was only three areas. Now they have guitar making, business, recording, keyboards, vocals. They have everything. But at the time, it was just GIT, BIT, and PIT. And so we had, wow. there we were again, a trio, power trio, but no singer. You know, there was no VIT at the time. And, and we actually ended up morphing, and that drummer fell away, and we auditioned a kid played like neil perman he had the huge set and his dad actually this was crazy me and this and we're both so green this <laughs> bass player buddy of mine from musicians institute we're going to audition this drummer i don't even know how we heard at uh out of one of the local papers or something and he goes okay well my we can rehearse at my dad's studio and me and my buddy alan the bass player <laughs> thought okay dad's probably got a cool studio in the backyard we're killer this is gonna be awesome right so he gives us the address in burbank and we pull up and it's 
evergreen studios that his father owns. His father was Artie Butler. If people want to Google it, who was, he did the studio. They, I mean, when I went from, I actually got to be honest, I kind of skipped a lot of my second half of my year at GIT. Cause once we hired this kid and all we, when we saw the studio, we looked at each other. If the kid can play a lick, he's got the gig. And he was <laughs> his name's Corey Butler. Right. And his dad, Artie Butler is legendary. This studio was where they did all the soundtracks for dynasty in dallas all the loimar shows oh. barbara streisand's in this studio we get to rehearse on where we when we went to audition it was like off time on downtime so because this kid's father owns the studio and it had two studios so whenever there was downtime we could either rehearse or record so that's oh, where wow. i started really getting my like producer chops and learning how to know your way around in a recording studio oh wow that's amazing dealing with red light fever and all that stuff and it just became natural because we're any hours all hours of the weekend at night and michael jackson was in there i remember seeing toto's road cases like uh, jeff and steve Picaro, steve lucifer's road cases out in the hallway i'm like what is going on here i'm on my way wow so for the first thing when, and yeah, so we were more focused on like writing and recording originals. And my buddy was like, the drummer said, cause I was into rush and maiden. And I guess a lot of the bands, the guys who were in Queens, right. Had similar taste in music. Right. Okay. Yeah. So my buddy, I mean, in Queens, right. Came out right around the time when we were doing this stuff and, uh, my buddy's like, man, you were writing like Queen's Reich before Queen's Reich. So it sounded kind of, we had a song that was kind of in the vibe of Take Hold of the Flame. And oh, cool. Had, yeah, it was kind of like that stuff. But again, no singer. And we were auditioning all kinds of singers. And what's amazing, because I just saw it in my news feed the other day, and you don't often see this video anymore rolling down your news feed, is one of the singers we auditioned. And we auditioned guys and girls and we just didn't find, find anybody that had that, you know, they got to have the voice, mm -hmm. the personality, you got to get along with them and they yeah. got to be a star. Right. Exactly. One of the people who auditioned, her name was Amy with uh, spelled E M I Cannon was her stage name. And Actually, we were really into using her. She was great, kind of like uh, Janis Joplin-y, raspy voice, good look. And you can see what she looks like, because what I'm leading up to is she ended up becoming one of the background singers for Motley Crue on, what tour was it, Dr. Feelgood, when they had Wild Side? Uh, girls, girls, girls. Oh, that video with the two girls in the back singing Wild Side. Yeah, yeah. Amy's one of them, and she dated Mick Mars for oh, a long time. I think wow. they married, as a matter of fact. Unfortunately, she's passed away. Oh. Also, had cancer. But it's just crazy the people who cross your path, even for a moment. You know, we rehearsed with her several times, brought her in the studio. She was trying to write some vocals over the top of the stuff. You know, I think it was too progressive for her or whatever, and it didn't work out. But imagine flash forward a few years and you're watching MTV. 
in yeah. Molly Crew videos, all the videos from that era, they had those female background singers. Yeah, just feel good. Leather with the studs and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was her. Wow. And so that was one of the people we auditioned and you know, a bunch of people who have gone on to do stuff cross my path and for one reason or another didn't work out. Keith St. John, who played with Montrose, he's in Kingdom Come now. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, so wow. That's that's usually how how it works in Hollywood and it's always the you know, the struggle is finding the singer even if you can find the rest of the band. Yeah, exactly. Especially think I mean think of the vocals of some of the bands that were coming off the strip in the 80s. Maybe not we hadn't evolved to like singers that were belting like Chris Cornell and right. Brandon Boyd from Incubus and Lane Staley yet. Yeah, exactly. So it was more like Vin Vince Neal kind of singers. <laughs> and I wasn't down for that. I was looking more for like a David Coverdale, Paul Rogers. Oh, uh, okay. Steven Tyler kind of singer. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So that, that, so that always eludes, that always eludes you. And yeah. It's a common theme from the very first bands in our garage all the way to the, the biggest rock stars and guitarists of today. If you see how, how many singers some of us have gone through. Yeah. At what point I, you ended up teaching Jay Reynolds, who had the gig with Megadeth, how to play Megadeth's songs, the Chris Poland parts. So how, how did you know Jay and, and how did that whole thing wind up with you playing for Megadeth? Well, this is a trip, man. <laughs> and they, I mean, they say, and let's just put this out here from the get-go, that success is when preparation and hard work and luck intercede, intersect, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had been, once I told you, I mean, we've taken the story from when Mr. Freeman, Mr. Finkham told me to <laughs> go make love to my guitar and I took his advice. Yes. On that $30 guitar and I've worked my way up to better and better guitars by this time. Right. And played in a few bands but nothing I hadn't played out in LA yet around this time. And it was really, again, only in the eighties. It was a snapshot in time. It was a time never to be repeated. You know, it'll yeah. we'll never relive it exactly how it was, but it was so, I don't even, it was really neat and, it was just an amazing thing that here in Hollywood, there was a lady named Lucy Forbes and she had a partner. I feel like her name was Susie or Sharon. I mean, this is now just shortly after I've graduated GIT. Okay. They had a company, the little rock and roll entrepreneurs. Lucy kind of was like a biker type of chick, a little tough and... You know, okay, that kind of girl you didn't want to mess with. <laughs> yeah, they had a placement service for musicians where musicians from all over town who came from all over the country and all over the world, the beginning of the Welcome to the Jungle video, right? Right, yeah, they would put their demo tape and picture and a bio on file. And by the time I went in there, I know Alice Cooper had found some people from them wow uh, carmine apiece was looking i know they sent me up for king cobra 
Oh, wow. I wasn't going to dye my hair blonde, but I did end up playing with Carmine years later, and there's some video of us and the drum war stuff. I've and seen that, yeah. Dio and Sabbath. Mob Rules, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mob Rules. placement service and my band from GIT the little trio had busted up and my buddy the drummer and that whole situation with the studio had blown apart for oh. one reason or another because we're all 20 something 20 somethings young dumb and right you know <laughs> I decided I was going to go down there and put my demo tape picture and bio and file right so I went down and they popped my uh, tape in the pl cassette player for you young kids out there. You might have to Google that right. cassette cassette tape player. They listened for literally like 20 seconds. And, the, and she looked up at me, the assistant. She goes, this is you. You wrote this stuff. You wrote this stuff. And I said, yeah. She goes, we know this stuff. We love this tape. We go. We got your bass player, Alan, already on file. Oh, wow. <laughs> My bass player, Alan from BIT, because our band hit a play. He was already down there on file, and I think they ended up getting him. His first thing that I knew he did post me was playing with Michelangelo Batillo, the oh. ampidextrous guitar shredder dude. Yeah, they got like, the like the five-necked guitar or something. Yeah, he, so they had my tape already on file from my bass player and so they were ready to take me on right then and there and that night they took me over to this this guy who was a photographer now turned rock and roll manager his name's barry levine he's actually really well known he was involved in the movie detroit rock city okay he works for gene simmons to this day he did the album cover for angel where they're right side up and upside down with the mirror on earth as it is in heaven. Yes. Killer logo that you can read upside down and right side up. He did that album cover. He did, I think the one before hell of a band. He did Aerosmith. He did kiss. He did Molly crew shout at the devil album cover. Like if you open that gate full, those beautiful pictures of the band. Yeah. Probably the best pics they ever took that inside of shout at the devil. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was Barry Levine. Wow. He did the Shout at the Devil video. He did the Girls, Girls, Girls album cover. And this was while I was living in his house. Oh, it was during man. when I moved into the band. We called it the band house in West Hollywood. Uh, it was him. They took me to these, late, these ladies from Rock Congress that night on a dime. That's how your life back then could be. It sounds like some out of a movie, right? Yeah. I got a rock star. And funny, that movie with Mark Wahlberg, that dude grew up in Columbus you know, an hour from where I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Tim the Ripper Owens. We're both from Ohio. Yeah. We're both Buckeyes. I'm from Dayton. He's from Columbus. Oh, cool. But it's like that kind of rock and roll story where I just walked in to put my tape on file and hope I could get some kind of an opportunity, even with a local band or something playing around town. Right. And 
That same night, I'm over sitting in Barry's living room, and he wants to manage me. He hears the tape, and uh, he shows me this photo. I mean, he not didn't just do rock stars. He shows me a photo album that I don't think he's ever even published to this day, which for me, wow. at least in my 20-something mind, and I know the stuff was amazing because it blew me away. He opens this portfolio of pictures of all these actresses share like coming over a snow capped hill with these huskies, something that you'd see like Frank Frazetta paint, right. the guy who did the Molly hatchet album comes. I'm like, my wow. mind is just blowing apart. He's showing me this stuff within like a half hour of meeting him. Oh my gosh. And Pam Darber from Mork and Mindy. He did her like it's some, a museum here she got out on the this giant lily pad and she was like a like a fairy princess right oh wow. and, he, and all these other actresses jane kennedy a popular actress from the 70s he had her in some superwoman setting so he's just blowing my mind with all the bands that he's photogged and actresses and he, this guy wants to manage me man and so i moved into his house in pretty short order and his partner, who actually was the owner or leaser of the house, uh, was named Chris Key. And he had a 16-track studio that he knew how to run upstairs analog tape. So there again, I went from uh, that amazing studio that I told you about, Evergreen. Mm -hmm. I worked in uh, while I was skipping school. The theme of my life, skipping school and, and elementary and, and high school, junior and high school, you know, with the turntable and then yep. skipping school, working at the recording studio. And now, now I'm living in this band house and trip out on this. So we were putting the band together around me and who's living in the back of the house. There was like, and it, it was weird because this house had a second floor where my room was. And that's where the recording studio was. And here I am again, getting to work in a cool recording studio 24 seven. Oh, wow. Anytime that, you know, that we're all awake and ready to work, we can just walk in and pick up where we left off. Right. Right. Yeah. In the back of the house, downstairs off the kitchen was like a guest's part of the house that I never even went in. I never saw it. I don't know how big it was, but I can honestly say my roommate who lived back in there with his girlfriend was Punky Meadows from Angel. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he was so reclusive at the time, like as reclusive as he's been over the years until their recent reunion. Like, I think he only came out into the main part of the house like two or three times. Wow. At the time, he had blonde hair, kind of the same style, but short, above his shoulders cut. Oh, wow. So I was like, I can't even believe it. And so Barry, we're producing a tape, and he goes, you need to work with someone that can help you hone all these great ideas you have. And so he calls Barry Brandt, the drummer from Angel. And then we start going down rehearsing in this big... I don't know what the place is called, but oddly enough, the guy who runs it to this day now is Chris Poland from Megadeth. He inherited it from this old man who ran it probably back in the day when I used to rehearse there with Barry. Um, oh, we'd go down to this rehearsal studio where Barry's drums were, and uh, I was paying the rent. I had a little 
<clears throat> my father had passed away. I had a little inheritance money and okay. I was able to finance a demo and Barry, I'd go pick him up in the Hollywood Hills every day. And we go to this rehearsal space and I'd play my riffs through my amp, you know, and he'd help me dissect them and turn them into songs. And I still have that tape. Oh, wow. I'd like to get all this stuff to come out so people can hear kind of like the evolution. Oh, but yeah. So I got yeah, to work crazy. with him and that was my first recording demo tape experience in Los Angeles was, uh, was that. And then, and that was just for recording. And we ended up putting a, a girl we found on vocals and she sounded like Ann Wilson. She was great. Whoa. But she didn't have the look and it just wasn't right. And I, I really wanted a guy singer. Yeah. To be honest. So I, I kept looking and we ended up putting a, a band together around me called broken silence. And that demo tapes kind of, our singer kind of stole it and put it out and oh. <laughs> it's floating around the internet. And so oh. people can, sometimes find that if they look hard enough. was I mean, that was amazing he had a range like steve perry but Whoa. a little more rasp guy wow. was amazing and snorted a ton of blow and still <laughs> sang like a bird <laughs> so it was kind of like journey meets Dokken meets gary moore oh my god like the corridors of power gamma stuff i love gamma the japanese import gary moore did that a lot of americans haven't even heard it's one of my favorite gary moore albums but you know, I always love like the whole Gary Moore, John Sykes, John Norum. Oh, I love John Sykes. Yeah. So like way before White Snake, like yeah. Tigers of Pantang. Tigers of Pantang. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I always, and like, I mean, you got Gary Moore and then you got his disciples, which are people like John Sykes, John Norum and me. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. And Jack Moore, his son, who's been on my radio show, who's a, a fine player. Chip off the old block, as they say. Oh, nice. So, And Barry took that band as our manager all the way to the point where we did a showcase at the Roxy. Okay. It was attended by, it actually got uh, written up in the LA Weekly. And there was a picture of me I still have in my scrapbook. It said, uh, Broken Silence played an impressive showcase at the Roxy, you know, sold out, blah, blah, blah. That was attended by the likes of Nikki Six and Mick Mars, the Bangles. Oh, wow. And I ended up going to a party at Susanna Hoff's house Ooh. as a result of that, which was pretty cool. She's really cool, right? That's Guys? awesome. Yeah. Time to walk like an Egyptian. Doesn't that just play through your mind the second I say it? Yes, name? it does. <laughs> and Stray Cats, uh, Slim oh, Jim. Uh, Slim Jim Phantom? The, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Which is weird because years later I played on a bill with him and Lemmy in Vegas for a cancer benefit. So it's like, again, oh, the, it's a small world after all in the music business. But we did a showcase and we were close to signing with Chrysalis Records, which was... For me, 
as I mentioned back, well, if we, you know, the listeners are still with us. <laughs> my, the, the first band we started out playing Benatar because I love Neil Gerardo still to this day and Pat Benatar. And yeah, she just had a great raspy, ballsy voice. Oh, unlike yeah. any, there's never been a female singer like her before or since. Nope. And, uh, or nor a guitar player who played with a female like that, like how Eddie played with Roth or Sammy or how Jimmy played with Robert. Right. You know, his leads were killer. And I've heard a lot of guys cite besides me cite Neil Gerardo as an influence, but you know, so for a guy from Katerine, Ohio, <laughs> You know, I the Ohio players said we could do this. They were from Dayton, and we knew, like, you could be from Dayton and you could do this. We yeah. all looked up to the Ohio players, and I love funk to this day because of it. But, you know, so love Pat Benatar, Neil Gerardo, and all right, we're negotiating with Chrysalis Records, who's their label, and yeah, some other really cool bands as well. But the band was just, like I said, that's... To embellish on what I mentioned about the singer, we were doing our second demo, like a record company had given us demo money based off the first demo we had. Okay. And we were demoing a second batch of tracks, which were even better. And unfortunately I've lost oh. this day. So those songs will never see the light of day. Oh. I remember some titles, but I do remember one riff I could. And if it's that good, I better make a song out of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were going down to San Diego at this studio where Berlin and some other cool bands had recorded at the time. I remember they had nice. just done that Top Gun soundtrack and were really popular. So we were all excited. Ah, oh, Berlin recorded here and a couple <laughs> other cool bands. And we got, again, it was kind of like we got to work there on downtime, like that studio I worked at during uh, my GIT era. Yeah. So we'd drive down there and work weird hours day weekends <laughs> afternoons if it was unbooked or nights late i saw this singer one day we were out in the lobby and then we were the only ones there and the engineer was in there doing some he laid out a line of cocaine <laughs> and i hate the stuff but he laid out a line of cocaine that it was like you know a half inch thick oh my god <laughs> three feet long what and just snorted it Oh Before he's got to sing. God. I'm like, this dude is, this, this cat's insane. Whoa. He's blitz. <laughs> yeah. You know? And he, I didn't know, man, he was out there singing like a bird. When you guys hear when this broken silence tape comes out, or if you track it down or have heard it, that guy was out there. He was, I wondered why he was always out there sniffing yeah. and snoring i was so naive at this time you know, i hadn't been in megadeth yet so i wasn't oh woken up yet. right yeah. <laughs> i'd just been hiding in my room playing guitar like to this day i don't drink coffee i, I don't really like to drink that much or don't take aspirin but oh, never wow. smoke cigarettes but this guy was out there snorting blow doing keeper vocal tracks that you know like journey would kill for today if Oh my gosh. I was like, this guy's out of hand, but he was also wild because he would do wild stuff. Like we'd go to Denny's and we'd be walking out and he'd walk slow behind us. And if there was an area where they had just mopped and they hadn't put the sign down yet, he'd do a slip and fall. Oh. Like, and he had a bunch of lawsuits where he, 
I'd go in a grocery store and he'd do it. He'd slip and fall in the grocery store and sue the grocery. Oh my God. This cat was out of control. I got to tell you one night, this is just a great story. I don't think I've told anyone yet, but these are stories that'll be in my book. Oh, cool. Coming soon. We were going to the rainbow one night and I had by this time moved out of that band house and long story with that. And that's what led to me getting the Megadeth gig once. Because Jay Reynolds, you said, how did I meet Jay Reynolds? He yeah. lived in this band house. Okay. And that might have been a long way to get to it. <laughs> Punk Meadows wasn't the only rocker living there in me. And my whole band sleeping upstairs on the studio floor. But Jay Reynolds was downstairs and I was giving him guitar lessons. See how everything circles around. It does. It's great. We were going to the Rainbow one night. The band had... A, you know, split apart because that manager, he became a Barry. He became a little bit too much like a father, a little bit too much like Hitler. Oh gosh. Right. And, uh, so I had to, uh, exit stage left of that band and the whole band exited with me. Sands, the drummer. So the bass player came with me and that singer came with me and you're not going to believe who the drummer we got, but we'll get to that in a moment. All right. We were going, I got to tell you this rainbow story because who does this? <laughs> who, ladies and gentlemen of the jury and <laughs> folks in the peanut gallery, listeners far and wide, who does this? I ask you. So one night we were going to the rainbow and the singer was coming over to my house and he wanted a ride. Okay. okay so by the time he got to my house, I had just probably got done practicing or something. And I go, okay, I got to jump in the shower. So I took my jeans off, threw them over a chair, you know, put a towel on, ran in the shower and took a shower real quick. And okay. he stayed out there watching TV, listening to music, whatever. I came out and like, so suddenly his whole tone had changed. He's like, okay, well, I called a cab because I'm, there's a, Girl, I just talked to you. I'm going to meet her there. And why don't you just meet me there? I'll meet you at the rainbow. Hmm. I'm like, I looked, I'm like, okay, if you want to pay for it. I said, I'm only going to be a few minutes. We can leave. But so the cab split when I went to put my jeans on and I had had probably a couple hundred bucks in there. Yeah. Uh Oh, you said had <laughs> <laughs> the interviewer. You don't even have to finish the story. The oh, he, everyone in the audience knows what knows what happened. Yeah, yeah. He oh. stole all my money, man. Wow. It's like I couldn't even believe it. And so that was the end of him being my singer. And dude had pipes. Um, gosh. So so that's that was a drag. And I went to the rainbow and found him and push him up against the wall and he had spent a little of the money on blow already is that's just how he rolled but he did give me back over a hundred bucks and man i didn't still i didn't pummel him right there in the rainbow and just cut my losses and yeah now we're back to a band with no singer right so it's just a bass player and (laughs) a drummer and are you ready for who the drummer is i'm ready Chris Poland's brother, Mark Poland. Oh my God. Oh, wow. Oh man. He never mentioned Chris the entire time we played together. We never talked about Megadeth. I didn't. Jay had walked through the house with David Elfson 
briefly one time in the band house when I was living there in West Hollywood. So I met David Ellison in passing. Okay. And he and Jay were friends, but you know, we had all lost touch and it's just, again, one of those strange, small, just such a, it's a small world after all. Yeah. He just kind of blew me away with Mark Poland. I, I'm... So Mark never mentioned Chris and I'd lost touch with everyone in that band house. And the only Megadeth experience that I had had, I'd never heard of them. Jay did come to me in his room one day before, after a guitar lesson I gave him. He had a cassette of Peace Cells. I don't know if it was finished or still in the demo stages. Yeah. I remember Chris's solos blowing me away. I'm like, that dude sounds like Alan Holsworth. Like, meets Jeff Beck. He's yeah. a killer. He goes, they might be firing this guitar player. Do you want this gig? And it, I I was, again, like into like more of the Gary Moore, Alan Holsworth, Steve Moore's family. Right. I'd never heard anything quite like that. And... So I, at that time I passed on it and this is flash forward months and months later. Now I'm playing with Mark Poland in this band and we're still doing one of the songs was so Gary Moore corridors of power. I remember to this day and we were demoing this stuff up on a four track. And one day, one day I decided I was going to call Barry and bury the hatchet, so to speak. Right. We hadn't spoken a few months Okay. And by this time, that band house where we all lived with Jay and Punky and the whole gang had disintegrated and so many funny stories that'll, <laughs> that'll be in the book about that house, including, I mean, it had bars on all the windows because it was a recording studio, but the police thought all these long hairs coming out was a crack house oh, drug dealing, geez. coke dealing around. <laughs> and they busted the house one night. I was at Ralph's. Probably the same store that uh, Big Lebowski's in at the intro. That oh okay, thing. but it was a night very similar to that. And I came home and Barry was in jail and the whole house had been raided and oh, it was a whole scene. God, oh jeez. <laughs> yeah, but I had lost touch with all these guys. But you know, we'd been through so much. And one day, I you know, a I was proud of the new demo tracks that I had because Mark Poland's a great drummer. As people. Yeah ended up hearing on some Chris Poland solo albums. Yeah. And damn the machine returned to Metropolis. When I heard that, I was like, shit, man, that's dude's way better than I even thought. That's a great album. And the damn the machine yeah, yeah, stuff yeah, is awesome. Yeah. So I had this, you know, four track cassette demo. Well, we're going to have to pause till this. Hold on. <laughs> Every time I do an interview, the other day, I, that interview that you saw. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> we redid it the phone rang so many times oh my god we ended, did it on another day because there were some technical difficulties in the guy's video as well but i digress <laughs> so i decided one day on a trip into hollywood i was living in the valley that i was gonna stop by and see barry i called him and he's like yeah he wanted to see me so i went over and i i was played in my new demo with Mark pulling on drums and the bass player that he knew and some of the guys he knew. Mm -hmm. And he played me my old broken silence songs that I had written with a new guitar player. Oh, wow. who happened to be the son of the guy who played the sidekick of Tarzan and the old black and white television Tarzan TV series, oh. Sabu. Oh, and that's the name he went by. And 
it was surreal hearing the songs with another guitar player who played totally different. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. And it, it was just going to be kind of like a kiss and makeup afternoon. And I was actually getting ready to leave. I played my stuff. I showed him mine. He showed me his. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was getting ready to leave and the phone rang. And Barry answered it. And he goes, yeah. And his face kind of went white. And he goes, this is so strange because I, and he's talking to whoever's on the phone. I haven't seen him in months. And he's sitting right here at my dining room table Oh my God. right now. Here you can talk to him. And he passed me the phone and it was Jay Reynolds. Wow. So, you know, I got on the phone. I go, hello. He goes, hey, Jeff, it's Jay. And he was being all crypt. He's like, hey, I got a big business opportunity to talk to you about. Can you stop by my house? I'm living in Laurel Canyon now. Da, 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 da. So I said, sure. You know, I had to pass by Laurel Canyon anyway to get back to the valley. That was an easy way to get home. So I stopped by and he told me. He, li- he was living in a little guest room in this really cool house that I pass every time I go through Laurel Canyon. So the memory is, it's there like it was yesterday. He said he got the gig in Megadeth, right? He was the new guitar player. And I flashed back to the hearing that cassette in his bedroom. And I was like, playing those leads that sound like Alan Holsworth. Yeah. <laughs> and I had given him guitar lessons. And he was like, he was kind of like the KK Downing of the band. He was in Malice. Okay. Like a Judas Priest knockoff. They were on Atlantic Records, which and that is a Zeppelin's label. And they did a couple albums. Yeah. He actually stole a couple of my riffs or on the, their oh. album License to Kill. Oh, jeez. A couple of my rhythms. One of them is from that Queen's Reich sounding song I told you about that sounded like Take Hold of the Flame. That I was working on with that drummer from uh, Artie Butler's son. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So He's like, I'll pay you 50 bucks an hour to help me figure out Chris Poland's guitar solos. And I got to write solos. They only got like two, three weeks to finish the new album. And they're at tour dates in California and UK. They were playing a big thing called Christmas on Earth with Testament Overkill and some other band. I forget who it was. So that was going to be like my first gig, I think was this series of four or six dates up the California coast and that Christmas on earth. But they, it wasn't going to be mine yet. It was going to be Jay's. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's employing me to teach him guitar lessons and I'd given him lessons for free. So now he's at least paying me. Yeah. (laughs) That's, I mean, that's That's how it happened. He was, I ended up going down to the recording studio on Melrose uh, called the music grinder. That's no longer there, but I knew Alan Holsworth had recorded road games uh that's the album that when eddie van halen got him a deal with warner brothers his one big big major label deal and eddie helped him on that album a lot i knew he'd recorded that at music grinder and one day i'm down there warming up looking out the you know they had a window where you could sit looking right out on melrose kind of like a bar you know like bar stools okay looking out and i had my notes there and i was warming up and it was a one, you know, you could look out one way, but people couldn't look in. Right. Yeah. One day I'm just warming up my eyes closed and all of a sudden it's soft knock and I open my eyes up and it's Belinda Carlisle from the Go-Go's pushing her nose up. <laughs> let me in, let me in. Because <laughs> they'd done one of their albums there. Oh my God. So suddenly I'm teaching Jay down at the studio and 
the producer was there, Paul Lanny, and they had a second engineer, a young kid. He looked like he was 17 years old, Matt Freeman. Okay. And David Elson would come through and Chuck Bueller was there a lot because he had just, I think, finished drum tracks. So lessons commenced with Jay and Ernest at okay. Music Grinder Studios on Melrose. And we were off in a little room with a music stand. And I remember I actually I'll rewind just to hear the day he offered me the, the teaching job. I drove over the hill and stopped at a seven 11 when there was pay phones. Yeah. Our kids look, look that up. Uh, it's <laughs> called a pay phone. It was our preceded cell phones. Called my parents collect back in Ohio. Mom, dad, mom, dad. I just got this job teaching guitar lessons to a buddy of mine who just got this really big gig with a band who signed to the same record label as the Beatles. <laughs> you remember the first album? I mean, yeah. First couple minutes of our conversation today, that was my first album. My parents bought me was the Beatles 65. Yeah. Capitol records, you know, the round building in Hollywood, mom, dad. <laughs> and I said, this guy, I go, he sounds like he's been playing guitar for maybe a year or two. He's like an okay rhythm guitar player. But the guy he's replacing plays like Alan Holsworth. And my parents knew who that was. Okay. Because I had taken them to see him. Oddly enough, Holsworth played my town the night before I moved to go to GIT. Oh, wow. The big jazz club. He played our town. And I took my parents to see him that night. And, uh, Oh, to hopefully awesome. give them a little faith that I wasn't going out there to be some kind of a rock and roll derelict. Right. Be more of a session guy like a Alan Holsworth or more of a high caliber guitar player like a Steve Lukather, mm -hmm. Alan Holsworth, Steve Morse. Don't worry, Mom. I'm moving to Hollywood, but, you know, yeah. I'll be okay. Yeah. So I'm telling my parents on the phone, there's no way this guy's going to do this gig replacing a guy who plays like Alan Holsworth. He's not going to do this gig in two, three weeks, not in two, three months, not in two, three years, not in this lifetime. Oh, I can feel this gig. I can get this gig. And they said, Jeff, no, 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 no. Both parents, you know, on landlines, right. You know, dad on one <laughs> connect one in one room, mom in the other. Yeah. Advising me, just go in there, son. <laughs> I can hear my dad now and and just teach teach this young man the best of your ability and let them see what you do. Yeah. And if they're smart enough and this guy's not that good, they're gonna figure it out for themselves and they're gonna hire you. And so that's what happened. <laughs> no, and it was really I think Chuck and and David Elfson and and uh, the producer and second engineer, because I didn't really meet Dave Mustaine until the stuff was done. I I met him momentarily, okay, for some moments, but he wasn't in the studio during recording sessions. Oh, uh, okay. So you didn't have a whole lot of time then to prepare. So now I'm under the impression that some of the the solos and stuff hadn't the, the songs weren't completed. And you had to go in and, and kind of... Yeah, well, that's the that's the challenge. Therein lies the challenge. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, 
the previous guitarist Chris Poland and Marty, they had a lot more time to rehearse with the band and there was pre-production and yeah. all that. I you know, and people love that album, but hopefully they'll take it into consideration and you know, I think it's uh I think it's a feather in my cap that I didn't get to rehearse with the band. I never heard any song it's in its entirety. God. I had literally the first the brief conversation I had with Dave was when they invited me to come down after the, some people had reported back to him and they said, this guy's the guy, you know? Yeah. I had a message on my answer machine. I came home from a rodeo one night and to be honest, I was about two, three months from leaving California and moving to Austin or New York or London or somewhere. Oh, wow. So I was done. I thought it was a lot of posers out here. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a, my answer machine was beeping. It was Dave Mustaine and he wanted to see me at the studio. And by this time I had been teaching Jay a couple, two, three days. The first thing I started trying to teach him and I started writing was the solo the hook and mouth. Cause it is in a way repetitive, but it, it's way harder than I meant it to be. When I, I started writing it like, it's kind of Michael Shankery, kind of flight of the bumblebee. Yeah. It sounds like a Russian jig or something. way way harder than he could do i mean it's hard for me to do i still use that to keep my chops up as uh is a great exercise and my students love to learn that one but oh yeah i was writing a couple solos and trying to teach them to me and he was struggling so that's what i think led to that answering machine uh, message and i went down and we walked up and down melrose and he gave me a cassette tape of in my darkest hour at the end once we got back to the music grinder it had like 60 seconds of In My Darkest Hour, and he pushed play, and he goes, it was like maybe a 20-second roll-up mm -hmm. with no vocals. It's the part where, you know, that he's going, you just laugh, ha-ha, bitch. Yeah, That whole, that wasn't there yet. It was the music and the drums, bass, and rhythm guitar, and he goes, okay, start here. And I hear the, dun -dun 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 -dun, where I'm going to be selling. He goes, stop there and come back tomorrow. And so I went home that night and this is where what I said at the very beginning where preparation and hard work and luck intersect because mm -hmm. luckily I was preparing hard at that time for, I didn't even know what, I mean, I was demoing stuff with Mark Poland and that by actually by this time had kind of fallen apart. Okay. Because the singer was, you know, off snort and blow the yeah. one, <laughs> right. you know, probably the lines he, he, he graduated up to six foot lines that <laughs> were inch by this time. Two yards. And he did the shit bag, did go and make some kind of a record deal with some company and some fans sent it to me and put out those broken silence tracks, four of them. <sighs> My songs that I wrote and co-wrote and so. That's awful. Yeah. So luckily 
I remember the big album for me right then was Gary Moore Victims of the Future because his tone on that record and his solos were, were just blistering. And his tone and solos had always been blistering. So I was figuring that stuff out and really practicing a lot. And by this time, by the end of GIT, my chops were up. It was by the end of the year, I'd been working in that studio, playing with some musicians. And I mean, for sure, the best they'd been in my young years. So I was ready for something. And when the call came, you know, and he gave me that tape, I went home that night and put the tape in. Again, kids were still working with cassette tapes. <laughs> And, you know, it was however long that solo is, I just played, some, you know, it's like we call playing over the changes. I just like came up with some, it's like if an artist, when he starts pencil sketching before he starts painting with colors, right. sketching it out. Okay. So, and he may sketch out a couple different pages and a couple different alternatives before he lands on what it's going to be. And that's kind of how I look at, you know, writing solos. So I did that as fast as possible. And, you know, like, you know, again, into the frying pan. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because I'm going back tomorrow. I mean, it was already the evening when I got home. It was already like six, seven at night. Oh, and I geez. had just a little time. And I came up with basically what you hear. And I went in the next day. And I remember I was really shy and turned my back to the mixing board. And my nose was almost pressed to the back wall of the studio. Oh, my, my back with Everybody. And I just... I did a couple takes of that solo. could say it was a loose improvisation because I'd sketched out some ideas, but when you're in the studio, some of the things, I mean, I just, you know, I played a few things and I really quickly, this is what I need to do. And what you hear is what you got. Wow. Everyone got really excited about it. And the producer, Paul Lanny, who was co-producing with Dave Mustaine, had just come off the Alcatraz Disturbing the Peace album, which, oh, okay. you know, Alcatraz was big for me. Oh, yeah. And he's like, I haven't had this much fun since I worked with Steve Vai on Disturbing the Peace on the Alcatraz <laughs> album, whatever, blah, blah, blah. blah. And that was probably more of a way for him to brag about the fact that he had just worked <laughs> with Steve Vai than compliment. But, and maybe he gave, he was giving me a compliment to boot. So then... That was the only solo I did that night. But then the next day I had already had hook and mouth. So I went and did that. And that okay. went pretty fast because, you know, it's two times in the song. And yeah, we put some kind of a pitch transposer thing on it. So that's, it sounds extra weird when you hear it. And there's also 
because uh, I was kind of into Steve Vai's flexible album also oh, around that. Time. Yeah. And, you know, I liked how he used the Floyd Rose more melodically instead of just dive bombing it crazy, wild, just jerking it around. Yeah. So you hear that I kind of did that in uh, 502 and we put the harmonizer on that as well. Maybe that day I might have done hook and mouth and they gave me a, okay, here's 502 and that's really short. Right. Uh, middle solo. So I might have gone in the other room and like messed with that for 30 minutes. Okay, I got something and did that. And we put the harmonizer on. So that every day I would just go in and then they started inviting people down from Capitol and like Jade be standing there and everyone's excited and freaking out. And he's like, you know, I remember him telling David Elson. And overhearing, he's like, maybe we shouldn't let him know that's Jeff doing that or something. And <laughs> oh. So within a few days, I remember, and it was David Elson and me somehow that got the job to walk, because I guess because Jay was my student. Yeah. And I think uh, maybe Jay was closest with Dave Elson. Maybe he brought him into the band. He was their heroin dealer, by the way. So oh, geez. I didn't know any of this stuff. I was... I didn't realize we weren't in Kansas anymore, Toto. Yeah. yeah. It, was still, it was a few days into tracking before uh, our guitar tech got arrested scoring Mustaine uh, heroin in East LA that I, I realized, and that's exactly what I said to myself, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. And here we go. Yeah. Probably, really. my, probably I felt a lot like my mom when she saw that Kiss Alive album when I walked up to her in the... <laughs> local Sears all those years ago. So, you know, I was, I didn't know the guys, as you said, I didn't rehearse with them. It was really, and that's, I think what gives it because compared to peace cells that had more of a jazz fusion vibe because of Gar and Chris. Yeah. This one. And especially because of the cover of the sex pistols, which we were going to do problems, which I would have rather. And I kept begging Mustaine to do that. But he wanted to do Anarchy, so that's what ended up on the album. They did end up releasing Problems years later. Yeah. I don't know if it's with me on it or... I'm not I think sure. It might have even been an acoustic version. I don't know what they did, but... So this one was more punky, right? Even Hook and Mouth has kind of a punky feel and, you know, the Anarchy song. And, oh, yeah. And it has a different vibe than, than So Far, So Good, So What, So... And likewise, Rust in Peace has a different vibe, so... Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, and you hear that kind of heroin vibe, and for sure Mustaine's playing on the record. Not, I was a straight edge there, so I, I was out of my element, but I was... And they actually told me to play sloppier on some stuff. Oh, God. Like, you sound too perfect. <laughs> sounds, you got On the Sex Pistols, for sure, the solo I did at the end, but I... Still got a little whammy action in there and <laughs> and oh, a kind man. of a shanker thing in there. But I did play some kind of Chuck Berry, Steve Jones kind of bluesy bends and, and whatnot. I 
every day. Yeah, it was just a, it was just a different soul every day, and it got to a point where Elson and I had to walk down to a restaurant uh, down the street with our buddy Jay and have the talk. Ah. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, you'd think the leader of the band would do that, but so. Yeah, I think uh, I think Elson got roped into doing a lot of stuff he maybe didn't want to do. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, and there's that's that. So then I was at least in, and we had, I mean, it was a total, I think two weeks that they had till their gig and the album had to be turned in. So there wasn't a lot of time. So I, I did all the solos and learned some rhythms. I play rhythm on Mary Jane into the lungs of hell and my darkest hour. Okay. Into the lungs of hell is one of my favorite Megadeth songs. I do that on the open my solo shows with that. Oh man, that is awesome. I'm not playing any of those leads and I don't really prefer it because I think they sound kind of sloppy as we were mentioning. Yeah. Those are that the heroin induced leads. And I mean, if that's your bag, that's cool, but it's more that Jimmy page kind of vibe is, as Dave has always said about his playing. So I, I played only rhythm on that. The first time you hear me on the album is at the end of set the world of fire. That first solo. Okay. Because I, I'm doing a partially instrumental show and I do sing a few songs, but Megadeth won't be one of them. I wanted to do one song from that album, so I learned how to do the, that solo, but I do it tapping like over the top of the guitar. Instead of like how Eddie does, I put my right left hand over the top. Okay, yeah. Do the right and left hand tapping and it's a whole showstopper. Stuns so, folks and the kids. I... Alike. I heard, and I'd, let me know if this is correct or not, because I'd heard that one of the first live gigs you did with Megadeth was actually what they used for the decline of Western civilization. That was the very first gig was what? the filming that's in the movie, The Metal Years. Yeah, that's oh, the very wow. first. And we just did one song, five, six, eight, however many times they made us play it that day. And... The legendary Southern California station, KNAC. That was the big metal station at the time. And I think they're still online and they still promote metal, but it was huge at the time. They announced that we were filming something. I don't even think they told the people what we were filming. <laughs> and they expected like 600 kids would show and like 6,000 people showed. Oh my God. So that's what you see in the in that Metal Years movie. So... Again, out of the fire into the frying pan. That was literally the first time on stage with Megadeth was that day. Then I think we had the Southern California gigs, and then I flew over and did the Christmas on Earth, and then the Ronnie James Dio Dream Evil tour started Man. in earnest in the USA. 
That's in major hockey arenas and whatnot. Now, how long did your time in Megadeth actually last? A year and change. Okay. Was there from then to the last gig was the Monsters of Rock, Castle Donington. Iron Maiden, Kiss, David Lee Roth, man, Megadeth, Guns N' Roses, opening for us because they were just breaking in the UK. Remember, they had just released Patience. Oh wow! And Jeez. Halloween opened the day. Oh, I love Halloween. It was my last day, my last show with them. Wow. And you can see that day in the Guns N' Roses Paradise City video. All of the. Double time, the second half, black and white, when everyone's pogoing, the big festival crowd. Actually, you can see us on the side of the stage watching Guns during that song. Oh, wow. There with our arms folded and our booking agent. I see Chuck. I see me. (laughs) That Paradise City video. You can see them. They had to take the Concord because they were on tour in America and they had to fly over real quick for that, that date. It, the monsters of rock. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! I'll have to pay more attention. I'll, I'll pull that video up and take a look. Yeah. What happened? What made you leave Megadeth? Oh, a saying that played in my head a lot at that time was "fame at what cost." Okay. So I just, you know, there was a lot of drugs, and yeah. there was a lot of ego that was further amplified by the amount of drugs. Hmm. There was a lot of insecurity that was further amplified by the amount of drugs. Yeah. And I just wanted to play guitar. I was just having a blast. I mean, I'm opening for Ronnie James Dio. Yeah. I used to be playing cover band gigs at the Knoxville World Fair. We played Neon Nights. So, I mean, (laughs) right? Right. I didn't mention who we opened for at the World's Fair. It's kind of cool. Artemis Pyle, the drummer, Leonard Skinner. Oh, nice. They pulled our power five times during our set because I don't think they were ready for a band. Like, imagine they're coming out to do, like, Sweet Home Alabama and stuff. And it yeah. was after the accident, and he was, heavily, you know, injured and yeah. had his traction gear backstage. And Wow. They wanted a band that came out doing Neon Nights, Murders in the Room Morgue, <laughs> and all these furious tunes, right? Right. So our originals were furious like that, too, so... They yanked our power, but oh my gosh, that happens at every. It happens at every level. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it was great. It was the I always say it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, and it was great playing, opening for Dio and playing for all the people that still to this day write me and say, "Hey, I saw you opening for Dio on the Dream Evil tour." Wow. Or I saw you open for Iron Maiden at Monsters of Rock, or on the seventh son of the seven sun tour, Man. which that was cool. Cause they had the white stage that looked like Antarctica or whatever. Oh, wow. And you know, you're with Dio, it's no more black stage. So it was cool. And to go from that to having a little, a little light in your life. And yeah. I remember the, 
Yeah, I always used to go out and watch every show of Iron Maiden, and Bruce Dickinson was so cool. He'd come backstage and keep us amused, you know, on certain terms. You ever fence with him? No, but that's where he gets some of his stage moves. Yeah. And from other than when he puts his one leg up, that move is he got from Ian Anderson at Jethro Tall, who does that while he plays the flute. Oh, it's even wow, like a okay. silhouette on one of the Jethro Tom covers. And he would do that where he'd put one leg up, you know, on his thigh. Yeah, yeah. Pied Piper, right? I don't know if I ever made that connection before. <laughs> We're making all kinds of connections. Yeah. And, and he's a great light, much like that singer back in Ohio, who we found out in Cincinnati, who could imitate Bruce Dickinson. Bruce Dickinson can imitate other people. And he, how he made us laugh when he would come backstage and imitate like Robert Plant or Dio oh, wow. or Ian Anderson. That's how I know he loved. That's what <laughs> made me confident. I knew as a kid when he did that move, oh, he, he bit that move for me and Anderson because I loved Aqualung busting out live Jethro Tull album. I love that. So, but when he comes backstage and he's much like, again, like this singer, he's like a rich little, he can imitate <laughs> these voices and you do hear Dio in his voice and you do, do hear some Ian Anderson and you do hear some Robert Plant, some Zeppelin vibes in, in his voice. Oh, for sure. He would yeah. make it like a caricature. He would do them, but with a, you know how when someone draws a caricature, they overblow the features, too big a nose, too big a ears, or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know, biceps like Popeye. <laughs> he did that with a vocal and he had us on the floor, like imitating Robert Plant, but with a, a comedic caricature twist and oh, Ian Anderson man. you can imagine how easy that would be to yeah. and so he was <laughs> he was really funny so yeah I mean that was the best stuff but it just it wasn't healthy to be around all that drugs yeah and it, it wasn't making the music better and they did clean up enough to get rest in peace together I mean we were already rehearsing Polaris and Holy Wars Punishment do Oh, it's sound checks opening for Dio. So that's early. Wow. So, I mean, this, there was no lyrics yet, but all the music was just as you hear pretty much on the records. Oh, that's amazing. Yet leaving Megadeth and were you still playing music or did you take some time off? Yeah, immediately because all the magazines and MTV put out a thing. Adam Curry, remember him? Oh, yeah. He had like the foofy hair, but tr had the fringy le leather metal jacket. Yes. <laughs> actually hosted Headbangers Ball for a while, but they did like, you know, the MTV explosion. And then the VJ walks out of the explosion. Jeff Young's left Megadeth and he's looking for a singer. And if you think you fit the bill, send your demo tape to this address. And I thought I'd find someone like Oni, who I was looking. I almost got him at that time or... John Karabi, who I also almost oh. got post-Megadeth. Wow. And before Motley Crue swooped in and got him. But I got a bunch of girls singing in their bedrooms to Bon Jovi records. <laughs> and and just like some dudes, but just like all over the world, just some of the weirdest submissions that you could ever imagine. That's so weird. And I, and I went through some auditions here in L.A. Some people that uh, have, have sang in saying the public eye to date that didn't didn't make didn't work out at that time and again it's that same issue it's tricky finding a good singer but 
oddly enough, I was laying out by my pool and I saw this good looking Swedish kid with curly hair, look kind of like Mike Tramp. Okay. Just turned out he was a singer and he was like in his 20s. <laughs> and he had a voice that was like a cross between David Coverdale and Bon Jovi. Oh, wow. But like, like the kid could sing. He had good pitch, husky. This was the second iteration of Broken Silence uh, demos that oh. may or may not be. Actually, a couple are on my. A couple of these tunes are on my Reverb Nation. Ready for Action, I think, is there. Yeah, which is kind of an homage to Phil Lina. It's kind of a Thin Lizzy, you know, we're a rock and roll band, a gang in the streets kind of thing here to rock your world, kick ass, take names. Okay, kind of song. something you'd start your set out with in an arena so i found this kid sitting out it was the apartment i was living in right towards the end of megadeth in burbank right next to an equestrian center oh and it's, it's weird how everything you, you notice all the stories i'm telling your things are happening by accident almost randomly like you're not trying to make it happen i mean you're trying to make it happen but you're not things are coming out of nowhere when you right. least expect it. Right. So I walk over to the singer and I tell him who I am. And one thing leads to the next. And my drummer at the time is Jonathan Vallon, who was the under the stage secret drummer on the Judas priest turbo tour. When they did like, I'm your turbo lover and all the more electronic drums and yeah. background vocals. He was triggering all that stuff. Oh, Wow. And he played on an album that I really love. Andy Taylor from Duran Duran left Duran Duran and did a hard rock guitar singer songwriter album called Thunder. Thunder, yeah, I remember that. And he had that MTV song "I Might Lie." Yes, it was killer. He was the drummer on that and the videos and on the record and everything. Oh wow! And he also produced and worked with, and I think hooked up with. The girlfriend of Wayne in Wayne's World, the Asian or Filipino-looking oh, uh, Tina Carrera. Yeah, he worked with her. He, wow. he worked with her and possibly worked her over. I don't know. <laughs> so he was my drummer, and we got Phil Sasson to play bass on the heels of writing "Shot in the Dark." Oh wow, so that was kind of cool. So on that track, "Ready for Action," that's an homage to Phil. I got Phil to play on it. So oh my gosh. And we had this young kid and so trip out. So we made the demo and shopped it around. I had a lawyer, Chuck Horowitz. He's a big lawyer in the eighties. He's probably about to, or has retired by now. He got rat their deal and he worked with journey in their heyday. Weird Al Yankovic, Whitney Houston. Oh my Just gosh. a few up and comers. Wow. The drummer buddy of mine, maybe through Andy Taylor. I don't, I know my buddy was friends with Juan Crochet from Rad, so maybe that's how he knew this lawyer. But the lawyer shopped our demo tape around, and 
we narrowed it down to two people who were interested in us. One was Fitzgerald Hartley, who managed Toto and Quincy Jones. Okay. And a few other people that escaped me. And the other that was interested in us happened to be Diamond Dave Management, which was oh, yeah. Pete Angelus and Patrick Whitley, who managed Van Halen for a time before they left with Roth when he left. And all those early Roth videos, California Girls, Gigolo, Pete Angelus was the director. Yeah. Okay. So he's similar to this Barry Levine guy, how he worked with Motley Crue doing the shot, the devil and girls, girls, girls. And the guy ended up working with me. Now here comes Pete Angelus. The, our lawyer called, said they want to handle you. We took a meeting with them in their Beverly Hills office. And Pete said, well, Jeff and Jonathan, we played your demo tape for the people who program radio, people who pick what songs get played on radio all over the country. Okay. And they said your demo tape's the best stuff they've heard in 10 years. Wow. We want to manage you. And the only other act we have right now is David. So hey, we'd be giving you a lot of personal attention. So needless to say, we signed with him and them. That's during that time is when we tried to get John Crow because believe it or not. And on that demo tape that when you hear the Swedish kids sing, the background vocals are all Jeff Scott Soto. Oh, wow. The kid, I mean, he was young, man. And he missed his, what it turned out to be. Oh, I'll tell you the story in order. He said his, he comes to me one night and he said, we're rehearsing for a big showcase. We got Diamond Dave management. I'm fresh out of Megadeth. You've got this drummer who played backstage for Judas Priest with Andy Taylor. You got Ozzy's bass player who wrote Shot in the Dark. Yeah. And you're a 20 something kid. And you're about yeah. ready. I think he was scared shitless <laughs> about, because we were about to showcase for all these record coming. He came to me one night and said, my parents got in a horrible accident back in Sweden. They went off a cliff on a ski trip and I have to go back to be with them. Oh, and what are you going to say? God. Of course. Yeah. Right. Of course. So while he's gone back in Sweden, we had some new songs we were demoing. So I was, I had Jeff Scott Soto back into the studio to do more backgrounds. We actually had him ghost vocal some high shit at the end of songs that uh, our singer Ricky, the young kid, couldn't quite hit. And he made himself sound like this kid. And wow, it's not on anything that's out there for people to hear, but it'll be out someday. And I'll make a note in the liner notes on my JY archives box set that Soto did these vocals here and there. That happens a lot. There's some Man. vocals on uh, Skid Row album that aren't. Sebastian that I think won vocals like Snake or oh man someone else went and sang vocals for him oh, that, that, that tends to happen oh so man. the kid goes back to Sweden get this and we're all feeling bad for the kid right mm -hmm. we're tracking one day with Soto and we get done and we're paying him and we're oh man thanks so much patting him on the back you do because he comes in the studio and he does like 40 tracks of like Journey Def Leppard you know, wow. hysteria type vocals and everyone's in tune. He's just amazing. And we're like, thank you so much for helping us out in this pinch. You know, our, you know, our singer got his parents got in this horrible accident. We tell him the whole story and he's looking at us with this strange look on his face. He kind of puts his head down and shakes his head. He's like, it's like, you, he, he didn't know how to tell us, but he told us, he's like, I don't know how to tell you, Jeff, but Jonathan. 
Ricky's parents didn't get in any accident. You just said you guys were working him too hard. He missed his girlfriend back in Sweden. And how would Jeff Scott Soto know? Because it just so happened that our singer's girlfriend was best friends with Engve's girlfriend. Oh. This is long after Soto wasn't even still playing with Engve anymore. But see, people, this is a little lesson to all you people out there in Radio Land about lying. Yep. And about uh, honesty and about karma. Because check out what happened when he tried to come back. And so now we're pissed. We find out that he just lied to us. We were renting out our expensive rehearsal studio. Yeah. We look like a fool in front of, you know, Phil Sasan, Ozzy's bass player, or, and all these people in the studio that day when the, he tells us this. Yeah. And we, we make the revelation. And now the guy's trying to come back into the country and he doesn't know that we know and we're not going to tell him until he gets back and then we're going to fire him (laughs) but he calls me from canada he gets busted coming back in because there's something wrong with his visa oh he's calling me from the pokey right (laughs) oh jeez and wanting me to help him i'm like dude i don't know what to tell you man yeah sorry that's when we tried to get john (laughs) karabi oh wow and and when we go into Pete's office for our weekly meeting, he goes, I don't know what to tell you guys because we've tried everything. And he goes, I'll tell you this, Molly Cruz offered him a Harley and offered him this, that, and he won't leave the scream. Not for you guys, not for Molly Cruz, not for anybody. Wow. But then they offered him millions and he finally did do the Motley gig. So. That'll do it. Harley so, and millions. And we were no singer. You know, I'd been looking for a singer since I'd moved here and since i started playing guitar when i was 14 you've heard the story and Mm. here we were with no singer and and pete angelus and patrick whitley signed the black crows wow we kind of got lost up in the shuffle there yeah but one night i got a phone call we got a new singer but he just didn't have the same magic as this kid but one night i got a call this singer that minus his magic and <laughs> and my drummer and bass player were in my living room, and I got a call from Pete Angelus. He said, Hey, Jeff, David wants you to come over to his house in Pasadena tonight. Oh, wow. Tonight, he wants to talk to you about replacing Steve Vai. Oh, my God. The Roth band. And I just remember I just played Downington with Roth, with Steve Vai, and it was. Uh, Greg and Matt Bissonette, the brothers on the rhythm section, yeah. bass and drums. And I was really tempted, but my band was there and I was kind of trying to be loyal. And like, even though I like wasn't digging this singer, I was like, yeah, but Ross voice live kind of blows. And, yeah. And I don't know what made me pass on it. I, I think that really offended them because uh, they didn't really help us much. I mean, they had the black crows and I didn't, and they ended up getting Jason Becker. Right. Which was cool because then he got the chance to do that major album before he got sick. Yeah. So I'm really glad about that. That fact. Yeah. That was very fortuitous for him. That Because I, I know he'd done cacophony and all, but beyond that and, and the Roth, I'm not exactly sure what else he had done. And, you know. No, I mean, well, he got sick with the Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah. So. And then. Being, it was right during the release of that, like the album was done and he has to tell everyone in the, in the Diamond Dave entourage what's going down with him. Yeah. You know, he was losing the ability to walk and play. 
Uh, and we were just becoming friends. Jason and I, and I were buddies. I had just seen him at the NAMM show. And so it was a bummer, but, you know, and he couldn't really play blues when he got the Roth gig because he was more out of that shreddy school, the shrapnel school. Right. They sent him to Steve Hunter, who, for folks who yeah. don't know, that's the guy who played the intro when you hear Aerosmith train kept a rolling on the radio. Yeah. times a day. <laughs> yeah. Classic rocker. Get your wings. And I mean, that whole solo, the first half, the slow halftime half, that's not Brad Whitford or Joe Perry. That's Steve Hunter. Right. On guitar. And the second double time half in train kept a rolling on get your wings is partner of the time, uh, Dick Wagner. They were kind of like the twin Steve Lukather session aces of the time ghost guitar players. Yeah, yeah. They were recording with Alice Cooper doing Welcome to My Nightmare wow. at the time, I believe, in the next studio and got called in and they threw those solos on. That's why you listen to the solos on Train Kepper Roll and they sound so different than every other solo on Get Your Wings, right? Yeah, for sure. So they sent Jason up the hill in Hollywood to study with uh, Steve Hunter. The second I got a load of that, and he didn't just do that solo. He played on all the classic Lou Reed stuff, like Rock and Roll Animal album, Sweet oh, Jane. Yeah. You know, okay. That we've all heard on the radio. Yeah. All these years, um, heroin, all that stuff. He did uh, not the drug. He didn't do the drug the song. <laughs> the heroin, song, right? <laughs> the Lou Reed song, heroin. He played on Salisbury Hill, the beautiful 12 string, Peter Gabriel. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And. You know, he's on Eat Him and Smile, the David Lee Roth track. And he's on Welcome to My Nightmare. Oh, man. Alice Cooper, he's the guitar player on all that stuff. And my favorite Alice Cooper album, Goes to Hell. Go and listen to the solo to... You could put it behind this whole talk section here. I'm talking about Steve. Off Alice Cooper Goes to Hell, the song is I'm the Coolest. Okay. He does a great, slow, bluesy guitar solo on that really clean... That just shows you some of some of Steve's virtuosity. And so the second I heard that Jason was studying with him and you really hear the difference from all of Jason's previous playing to how he played on the Roth album. Right. Right. Much bluesier. Yeah, for sure. I, when I heard about that, I said to Pete Angels, I want to study with Steve Hunter. <laughs> and I was up the Hollywood Hills to Steve Hunter's house faster than you could say train kept rolling. Oh my gosh. And so I was big on Johnny Winter and Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and yeah. some of the more modern blues players. I'm like, Eric Johnson's great at blues. He's like, okay, that's great. But he pulled out Albert King years gone by right? and he put that on and he, and that totally flipped my world around. And I still have all the cassettes of my lessons with Steve. Oh, wow. And, uh, so such a great experience. And, Never stop learning. You always, and that's post Megadeth. You always, if you find someone you can learn from, do it. Yeah, absolutely. There's something to be learned from everybody, including me. And I give Skype internet guitar lessons and Zoom and even Facebook Messenger, wherever you want to get video with me. So, oh, cool. Hit me up, Jeff Young Music at gmx.com or Jeff Young Music at gmail.com. And uh, it's all guitar lessons. So and everything I've just talked about, you know, it's an amalgamation. That's an amalgamation of what I teach. 
After Megadeth, you worked with some amazing people like Baji Assad. You've done the, the YMT guitar trio, which I thought was fantastic. Farm Aid with Baji and uh, putting Farm out your- Aid 2000, Lilith Fair we did. Right, right. Which right, was right. weird. That was weird for a little. She could barely speak English when we met. We really did some magical with that Brazilian project. I'm Again, I met them. I mean, this is going to have to be a four part episode, dude. <laughs> I met a guitar maker. Like after I was putting a band together. Right up until I kept trying right up until the Northridge earthquake hit out here in California in 94. And right about that time I had had enough. And we were actually really close to a deal, uh, my band, but I, I was just a little over LA and left the business for a while, went back and worked in our family business, went to Wharton business school in Pennsylvania. That's amazing. Learned how to help my mom save our family business after my dad passed. And I didn't really play guitar for a while, but you know, Wow. As we talked about earlier, I'd been playing since first grade, some kind of music and our drafting guy at the family business played drums and one thing led to another. (laughs) And so I decided I was going to play guitar again and more acoustic based stuff at first. So I got a Taylor endorsement, got a couple Taylors. Oh, cool. Six string, 12 string acoustic bass. And we actually started playing. We, he knew a singer and a bass player. That singer knew a bass player. We started playing around Dayton while I was working in the family business, just doing like Joplin and this girl could sing raspy Melissa Etheridge. Oh, cool. We did live that big hit. They did uh, candle box cover me. Oh, wow. It's all kinds of cool stuff. Cause we played a lot of college. We had a buddy who owned the big college bar in downtown Dayton. So We knew all the songs the kids were loving in college. Right. So that was really fun. And then I said, okay, I'm going to make what became Equilibrium and what became the Brazilian project. All the songs I started writing there that had a world music flair. Yeah. Somehow after I went away from music, you know, after the rock and metal and blues and neoclassical and shred and all that stuff, I came back and I was getting into world music. African music. Oh, wow. A lot of the stuff on Peter Gabriel's label. He has a whole label called Real World. Yes. He has this one artist called Jeffrey Oyema. Okay. Who's amazing, this African artist. I highly recommend check out his first album. Oh, so yeah. good. Jeffrey Oyema. And he broke Nusrat Fada Ali Khan, who's the guy duetting with Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam in the Dead Man Walking movie soundtrack. Right. Yeah. That really eerie, eerie vocalizing that goes back and forth with Eddie Vedder's Nusra Fadal Ali Khan. Yeah. The, the long road, I think it is. Yeah. So, and I was getting into all this stuff, which is where Sean Lane, the great guitar player, great, yeah. great, great, great guitar player that we all love. Yeah. About to rest his 
poor soul and memory. His guitar playing came a lot from listening to Nusrat Fada Ali Khan's melody lines. Really? Oh, wow. Vocal and Jeff Buckley as well. Yeah. Rest in peace. He loved Nusrat. So between Peter Gabriel's label and my mom loved Girl from Ipanema, I started getting into Brazilian music and Bossa Nova and samba and once you start getting into afro you start finding bands that are fusing afro brazilian okay because a lot of there's a lot of migration from african and brazil okay so i i was just doing that for fun in dayton and i read an acoustic guitar magazine uh they were doing a series on guitar builders okay classical guitar builders nylon string guitar builders and this one guitar builder thomas humphrey you can Google his name. He's passed now. Came up with an innovative, the first innovations in the design of the classical guitar in the last hundred years. Okay. He raised the, elevated the fingerboard. It came to him in a dream, inspired by the shape of a harp. So oh, wow. if you Google the Millennium Classical Guitar, Thomas Humphrey Millennium, you'll see what this, and many other guitar makers now do this to their guitars because of Thomas Humphrey. I'm looking at it right now. And the bracing of the top of the classical guitar, how he did the bracing inside of the guitar to give the top stability was different and revolutionary. And everything he said in this interview made so much sense that I found a way to contact him in New York. Okay. And I said, I want you to build me a guitar. Sight unseen, never held one in my hand. Just wow. I'm reading this four page article, right? And he said, well, the bad news is they're $6,000. And that was back in like 98, 98. Gosh. And it's like a year waiting list. And my wife is Brazilian and we make them together. Oh, wow. Okay. You're not scaring me. That's this is when I was writing. I wasn't really playing a lot of guitar, but I was still writing my column fingerprints for guitar for the practicing musician magazine. I remember that I worked at the company, but I was just starting to play again. And I actually, how I got my chops back is I signed up to go down to the university of Cincinnati and I got my ass kicked in a summer workshop with a bunch of uh, you know, classical guitar players who were like at the top of their game, you know, getting their degrees and fresh out of a four-year classical, you know, pedagogy. Yeah. And I went down and took that and that's what got me into it. But I did that on a, like a $400 Yamaha classical, right. that I, you know, <laughs> I was just getting ready to play. So now I was ready to get a serious guitar and I read that article. I ordered that guitar. I put a deposit on it. I said, Hey, I'm going to fax, look it up kids. I'm going to fax <laughs> this, this Thomas Humphrey guy, some of my guitar columns, cause maybe it, it'll help us bond, whatever. Yeah. It'll impress him. It'll maybe help me. Maybe I could do an article on him. Maybe knock some money off the price of the guitar or something. There you go. Yeah. So flash forward, I, I faxed him a few of the columns. Flash forward a week or two later, I'm practicing downstairs in my little practice room and my mom comes downstairs, Jeff, Jeff, there's a Thomas from New York on the phone for you. And, oh, okay. Ran upstairs. Hello. Hello. And he was smitten with my writing style and my columns. And he had <laughs> taken a copy them and faxing them to some of the greatest classical guitar players 
in the world. Elliot Fisk. Oh, wow. Sharon Isbin. These people who played his guitars. Wow. Uh, and he said Sergio and Odaya Saji. And I didn't know who that was any more than, you know, <laughs> if you spoke to me in a foreign language, right? I didn't know who he meant. I knew who Elliot Fisk was. And actually that prompted me. He said, I'll get your guitar done quicker. I'm going to try to get done in six months. And we started buddying up, right? And in this time, I went to, remember Borders Books and Music people? Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things I learned when I was working in the family business and going to Warden is about benchmarking where, you know, if your company's not doing so great, you look at companies, look at other companies who are similar to yours that are doing great. And what are they doing? Or even other companies who have your same business model. Okay. And maybe you could learn some things from these companies, right? Right. So I went to Borders to benchmark other people who were, I was, I was going to do some kind of a world fusion rock album, which I did. Yeah. And it became Chameleon and it became Equilibrium. I did two of them. Some of the songs off my new release I'm putting out have world music influences, but I was getting into so much world music, buying so many world music albums. One day I said, I'm going to benchmark every other nylon string acoustic player who's cool. So I went up to Borders Books and Music and I bought some Michael Hedges. Oh, yeah. I bought some Leo Kotke. I bought some Craig Chikiso. People might not know that name, but he's the guy from Jefferson Starship, who played all the leads on their big hit, Jane. And he left that band, and he now does, like, acoustic music, kind of like what I did. Okay. More kind of a southwestern desert smooth jazz film. Oh, wow. And Baji and I actually, strangely enough, ended up opening for him, which is what's so surreal about this story. I got a Craig Chikiso album, a Leo Kaki story uh, album, Michael Hedges album. And I had remembered this Brazilian girl from these Takamini ads in all the guitar magazines. It was a really kind of funny looking ad. She was holding a Takamini guitar and she was in a hang glider. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was an ad for Takamini guitars and the artist was Baji Asaji. Wow. It's written, it looks like B-A-D-I-A-S-S-A-D, Badi Asad, right. which is... I remembered that album because they had the album in the ad and, oh, I saw it there and I said, oh, cool. I picked that up because she had a nylon string guitar. She's playing Brazilian music. And I knew that it had got Guitar Player Magazine Reader's Poll Best Album of the Year. Oh, wow. And they said, it's not classical music, but played on a classical guitar close enough. And they gave it the award that year. Wow. So I bought all these albums and went home and listened to all of them and to try to... I got to do something that's at least this good and different. And I was just going to do this with my own money for fun or whatever, maybe shopping around from Dayton, Ohio, you know, beating on the guitar for percussion. Yeah. 
using nature sounds. I was getting into yoga. All these things were coming to me. And what was strange is this one album of all the albums, Bajee was doing just that, making nature sounds, beating on the guitar, making instruments out of nothing, right? Oh, she, awesome. The fan thing that Van Halen does with the drill, the mm -hmm. drill bit pound cake thing that he and Paul Gilbert do. Yeah. She didn't even know who these people were. By just <laughs> intuitively, she took, you know, those fans that people cool themselves with at sporting events and yeah. whatever. There's people fans. Little handheld things. At a junk store. Yeah. 99 cent store at Spencer Gifts. Right. Mall. Remember malls, people? Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody remember laughter? Oh. oh. She made this thing. She took the fan and took the blades off and put like three or four nylon strings like a g string from a classical guitar in place of the fans and put it up against the guitar strings to make tremolo oh, on the guitar wow. that's she, amazing this girl, she was beating her face doing mouth percussion before any of these rappers i'd never heard wow. anything like this mouth and she could play her throat and open it like a talking drum where they changed the pitch by putting the drum under their arm and squeezing. Oh, wow. This girl was like something from another planet. And I, I immediately fell in love with that album. It was just amazing. That's incredible. Well, little did I know during the time as I'm going down to my workshops at the University of Cincinnati, practicing in my little woodshed downstairs, talking to Thomas and he's mentioning all these guitarists that play his guitar, including Sergio Dair Asaji. One day, and I never told you, I guess I got to tell the story because it's just such a mind blower how I found Thomas's number. In that article in Acoustic Guitar Magazine where I read about that dream guitar that I ordered, mm -hmm. there, and you people who read guitar magazines and probably any magazines notice when they put a celebrity in there, there's going to be somewhere in that four or five page article, there's going to be an ad for something they use. Right. In this article from this guitar maker, and he's just like a classical guitar maker, not someone like a Gibson or a Fender or anything, right. or even a BC Rich. D'Addario Strings had an ad series they were doing with different guitar makers. So... Here was a full page ad and the ad layout was a Polaroid picture of, of Thomas in his workshop. His little daughter looked like she was five or six years old sitting on his workbench. He's holding up a classical guitar and saying, all my guitars go out the door with the Dario strings. It's part of the sound of my guitar, whatever. Oh, wow. And below the Polaroid picture was his business card. Oh, Wow. I put a magnifying glass on that ad. That's how I found him. That's how I ordered that guitar. <laughs> oh my gosh. And all during this six month period where he was making my guitar, I had torn that ad out of the magazine, had it tacked up on my bulletin board, just looking at that guitar looking at that guitar maker in his shop, making this beautiful guitar. Wow. Remember after all, it has the first innovations of, any nylon string guitar in the past hundred years. So I was yeah. stoked too stoked almost to notice until one day I was sitting there practicing. I'm staring at that picture. I'm practicing on my $400 Yamaha. <laughs> oh God, I can't wait to get this guitar. This is, I'm going to be so much better and then I'll be ready to start recording my album. I'm looking at that and imagine in a full page ad, if a Polaroid was almost actual size, 
like how big the items in his workshop would be. They'd be teeny, like his screwdriver and things on the walls and, you know, everything is teeny. Yeah, yeah. If he had any pictures or postcards or anything hanging up on the wall. And as a matter of fact, that day, as I stood there staring and looking at that thing closer and closer, I saw a picture on his wall that like in the ad is like half the size of your pinky nail. If that of two, you could tell they were brothers with beards. And then next to them, I could tell that was body Assad. That was that girl whose album I bought that I was loving Wow! on his wall. And so I ran to the phone as fast as I could called New York. I'm like, Thomas, Thomas, because we'd been buddying up and talking on the phone about music and guitar building philosophy. Yeah. And I never put it together because he never mentioned much like how Mark Poland never mentioned his brother, Chris. Yeah. He never mentioned by G. He only said, and I was reading her name wrong. I was pronouncing like a gringo. Yeah. The pronunciation is Baji Asaji. Okay. Sergio and Odayo Asaji. And I'm saying Badi Asad, and that's how I'm reading the album. And mm -hmm. so I call up Thomas, you know this guitar player? There's a picture on your wall in that Diderio ad of Badi Asad. And he just started laughing. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, her name is pronounced Baji. She's like my second daughter. Oh. That's Sergio Nodayer's younger sister. Wow. And he was like, she's great. Yeah, she's great. I go, oh man. I was talking about all the stuff she's doing. Then I, I was telling you with all the weird instruments and yeah. beating on the face and mouth percussion. He's like, ah, she's great. But you want to meet her brother, Sergio. He's the greatest living guitar composer. As a matter of fact, he's producing her new album for Chesky Records in New York. Uh, next week, you want to come meet them? Oh, wow. I was on a plane in New York faster than you could say, please put your seats in the upright position. Yeah. So, wow. Then I met them through this guitar maker. And do you see how every throughout this story? And I mean, please edit this down to the best parts as not to bore the... <laughs> the listening audience and i'm sure if you do it's going to be pretty powerful but you see how every instance where like the door to the big time opened and by g and i went on to produce a number one album co-write and produce number one album for verve polygram Like you mentioned, we did Farm Aid, Lola Fair, open for Joe Cocker, Man. Cassandra Wilson, the great jazz singer, yeah, Atano Veloso, and many Brazilian legends. I lived in Brazil for four years. It was that's amazing. miraculous for me. It was a much more musically enriching and fulfilling and expansive journey than the Megadeth thing, and it was I mean longer. It was four years. 
as opposed to the shorter duration of the Megadeth thing. But yeah, I mean, and it was so strange in a cab ride home that first na- night I went to their recording session and we dropped Baji off at her hotel and Sergio and I shared a cab because he was uh, staying on the side of town where my hotel was. He was really upset. Baji was about to take a deal with Sony Brazil and it was a huge deal because I saw the deal. Yeah. And deals in Brazil are non-recoupable for the uninitiated in America. If a record company gives you a 120,000 to 500,000 a million dollar advance, you got to pay that all back. Right. Before you see dime one from any record sales in Brazil, it's not like that. They give you the money for keeps. Wow. And so Baji had the the opportunity for a huge record deal, but they wanted her to sing like some of the famous Brazilian pop female artists of the time. And she was an award-winning classical guitar player. Yeah. And he was very upset about it. So I went home to my hotel and I thought, man, that would be a crime. That would be just a crying shame. And I know a lot of connections, even though I was in a different genre. And I, next morning I called out to California from New York to Todd Cooper Jr., his father is one of the another big big music attorney. Okay, I think he's written about in that book Hitman, one of the big music ah, books. Ah, okay. I said, Todd. I had Todd on the phone because he he got Slaughter signed. As a matter of fact, I think he reps Incubus to this day. Oh wow, he's worked with a lot of people. After Diamond Dave, he was working with me, and we were friends. And all through the years, and I I called him up years later, and I said, Todd, you're not going to believe it, but I'm sitting in New York. And just came from a session last night with this Brazilian girl who plays nylon string guitar beyond Van Halen, Hendrix. The stuff that she does on guitar is incredible. She beats her face like a drum. She can play guitar with one hand, shake her with the right hand and hammering on with the left hand and sing or she'll play guitar with only the right hand and a uh, weird tuning and a marimba with the left hand and sing she does this she does that he goes jeff i'll be on a plane i'll see you in about five hours wow and again it's like it's out of a movie and this lawyer got bought a plane ticket flew out to new york and the next day Sergio's girlfriend brought this girl. She barely spoke English. I think they were really suspicious of us and they knew the name Megadeth and that probably made them double scared. Yeah. <laughs> but they came over with Baji and she did her thing in the hotel room. And one thing led to the next and we got her the deal. And Verve is, that's probably the most legendary jazz label. That's for sure. Beam, who's the inventor, the pioneer of the bossa nova beat. Yes. Which is the rhythm that Girl from Ipanema. Oh, I love Jobim. Many, many Brazilian songs are written in. His catalog is on Verve. Yep. Diana Craw, you know, uh, Billie Holiday, and just a couple more up and comers. So, and Polygram at the time was the biggest label in the world with many subsidiaries, including AM Records, Verve, Island Records. And so we were lucky we got a deal and uh, the rest is history with that. Unfortunately, Seagram's Whiskey swooped in the, the week that our album was released and bought Polygram Records. I remember that happened. Universal yeah. Motion Pictures. 
And what you guys now know today is universal motion pictures, universal music. Yeah. It's that. So that kind of messed us up in America because 3,000 people from our label lost their job when our album was released. <sighs> but luckily in the rest of the world, that's why we were able to still go number one in Germany and chart above Madonna in Holland. And that is awesome. Played everywhere from Australia, New Zealand, Philippines, Brazil. It was just, we, we were on tour in Germany for a month solid. It was, wow. it was just a beautiful experience. And, and instead of playing hockey arenas, you're playing these beautiful Victorian theaters and majestic, you know, where they're, they're designed for opera and sound, you know, it doesn't sound like you're in a dumpster, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're playing a hockey rink. So yeah. that, that I, I, that's how that happened. And it was, uh, that was a blast. And the last gig we did, I, I guess I end every, at least every big thing with a, with a big show. The last gig with Megadeth was the Monsters of Rock Castle Donington show we yeah. mentioned. And the last gig with Baji was that Farm Aid 2000 wow. with, you know, obviously Willie Nelson got to hang out on his bus. Oh, once nice. We were done playing. Dude, that was the coolest. He's the coolest. That is awesome. That's a trip in itself. That whole story hanging on his bus. <laughs> that day was, uh, you know, Willie, John Mellencamp, Neil Young, Neil. Travis Tritt. Bare Naked Ladies were super cool. Oh, nice. And you saw the video who's playing bass with us at Farm Aid, Billy Sheehan. That's right. Yeah, I love Billy. Oh, That's on God. Budgie's channel. People can look that up. The Man. song's called Nio Nio. Yes. And a-I-O-N-A-I-O. one day and that was on country music television for two and a half million people Jeez. the next day wow and no sound check no sound check no line check they push you out like all your gear is on like uh, rollers and they go to commercial on country music television mm -hmm. they push your gear out and they and they go okay get out there and they uh wow you're on in three and two one and yeah. you're live Man, the festival crowd that you and we played in the afternoon, and that was just awesome. And I'm I'm realizing certain things in this interview today. I didn't put together till today that both those things. The last gig I did was this big festival. Well, we got to work on the next big festival for you. Yeah, I'm now, working on that. I got a couple th irons in the fire. Oh, good. That's good to hear. I I was listening to some of the other stuff that you've done. The recent things you've you've done one of the coolest things I've, I've heard in a while is the uh cover of something george harrison something but if Jimi hendrix had recorded it i cool. love that I'm glad that, you got to hear that that is so cool i absolutely love that track that is amazing
trip about that? I would love to. That has been totally, that video has been totally squashed by YouTube. Really? That video had 16,000 plays the first week it was released. And I think it's just over 10 now. Oh my God. I woke up one morning. It's like 16,000. I got screen caps to prove it. Cause I was posting like, look, people, thanks. Well, if you think about it, um, something is probably one of the most covered songs in history. There's probably thousands of covers of George Harrison something on YouTube, right? Oh, yeah. There's got to be. So imagine if YouTube had to play George Harrison's publishing company for my cover and every other cover. So by squashing plays, then they have to pay less publishing. So that kind of bums me out because I know a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people have heard that. And it it bums me out because like people kind of judge like how many Twitter followers do you have or how many plays does your video have? But I digress back to the the actual song itself. Yeah, it's the Beatles something. And that's the second George Harrison song I've covered quite by accident. I didn't realize, but on Chameleon, the Brazilian album, we did kind of a Argentinian tango remake of while my guitar gently weeps complete with weather report bassist, Abraham Laborio senior. Oh, wow. And Weather Report percussionist Alex Acuna. So that's that track came out beautiful. So I guess I'm on a George Harrison thing in this life. And <laughs> something led me to that something track. And it's, yeah, it's exactly like that. Like, what if Jimi Hendrix jammed with the Beatles? What would that sound like? And they did something instrumental with no vocals. So that's that. I've also got to listen to some of the, the newer stuff, Monsoon. I love that. I'm a big fan of Tina. There's the cello. Now we're full circle there. Yep. And that girl. Wow. You guys need to look up, learn about Tina Guo. Oh, she's amazing. on so many of the soundtracks from Sherlock Holmes to the video games Call of Duty that you guys play and movies yep. you've seen. She's out on tour with Hans Zimmer, the yeah. great soundtrack composer doing his, he's doing music of his life. She's the cellist on that tour. She's the one uh, cellist on the Joe Bonamassa live album and they do a little That's, thing together. That is right. That's right. She I got gonna... her before Joe did. Oh, really? I, yeah, that's long before Joe Bonamassa. So, she was a guest on my radio show and I've always wanted to have cello on one of my songs because of the story we told earlier in the interview. Yeah. But also because I'm a huge gypsy Jan aficionado. I love Django Reinhardt. And although he did, he used violin with Stefan Grappelli, his partner. Monsoon to me is kind of like a modern Django you know, if you if you had a killer fretless bass player, a guy on electric and acoustic guitars, a killer drummer, a cello player, that's Monsoon. It has those gypsy jazz, gypsy elements, the sc- certain scales that uh, and modes are used in that song. 
they, they give you that vibe. So yeah, I finally got to get my cello mojo on, on that song. And <laughs> it was great to have someone in. I have two mixes on my YouTube channel. Yeah. I did see that. That give a different kind of different spin to the song. So, and that's the first single from my new album. I'm releasing it one track at a time or three deep. It's the album's going to be called is called revolutions because it's what a turntable does and uh <laughs> look at the world around us right now i'd say we need a revolutions yeah in so many so, different areas yeah monsoon was the first single then i put out uh in the flesh which that's really cool and different and uh same bass player rick Fierbachi, who i want to mention he He's played with everyone from Billy Cobham to Blood, Sweat, and Tears to Frank Gambale oh, wow. to Shakira. Jeez. Just a great, great bass player. And that In the um, Flesh is just the three of you guys, though, right? On Monsoon, it's Brian Titchy on drums. On In the Flesh is a good friend of mine from Las Vegas who's, I guess he, he's an alumni and an original member of the blue man group show in Vegas. Ah, he's not one of the blue face guys, but they have other percussionists up in the balconies yeah. that were other wild makeup and tribal yeah. vibes. So he's done the world tours. He's been all over the world with blue man group. He's an amazing player. I think John Bonham meets Terry Bozio from zap and missing man. persons. And that's Jeff Totora. So I've got Rick Fairbachi who I tend to use on a lot of stuff. And we just, I just love him. And I think he likes working with us and that's kind of surfy. It's, it's got surfy vibes. It's, it's got mm -hmm. a lot of different vibes in, in that song. I, I really like bluesy vibes and, and it just comes in. I like how it just starts out yeah. in the verse with that heartbeat bass drum and the bluesy kind of soulful guitar stuff. And this is all my band camp, which my URL just expired. I got to get a new one. Uh -oh. So my Jeff Young songs is dead people, but just find Jeff Young on Bandcamp. There's only a couple of us. Yeah. Slow Burn, my new single. And that's kind of like a psychedelic, bluesy, drop D tuning. Even got some kind of Alice in Chains, Van Halen, Fair Warning vibes in there a little bit. And is that the pedal steel going on in there too? I was about to say, I got Shania Twain's pedal steel player. Man. Beautiful gal named Andrea Witt. She is actually, get this, she's a violist. Ah. My first instrument. <laughs> and how I met her was one of my students at GIT when I was teaching there. You know, I, I, I was, I'm an alumni, but I also went back years later and taught there. Oh, okay. One of my students, you know, just like what I do, they end up in bands. He ended up in a band with her and I liked her viola playing and I kept an eye on her and I saw that she got the residency with Shania Twain in Vegas. So wow. I doubly kept an eye on her. Yeah. When it came time to do this song, it originally had vocals on slow burn, but I've been turning a lot of songs that I've had with vocals into instrumental because it's easier. And I like 
I like being the the lead vocal part. And there were so many. I remember all the. It's a harken back to the day when you'd hear. Like remember the instrumental Santana songs you'd hear on radio. Yep. Or even Frankenstein by Edgar Winter Group. These great instrumental pieces. And there's not enough of that where the guy's not just shredding in the verses and choruses. He's playing like a singer. Exactly. Whether it's on guitar or saxophone or keyboards, whatever, whatever the instrument, you know, that's kind of the vision of this new generation of instrumental tunes I'm working on. And when I decided, okay, I'm going to make this slow burn tune, a pedal steel lead guitar kind of trade off dialogue where we're talking to each other. Mm -hmm. I called her up and she was only too happy to oblige. And she just picks up pedal steel because she was in Sonia Twain's show and she's some kind of virtuoso at it. And she's using echoes and reverbs. And <laughs> oh, I mean, you hear it doesn't sound like your typical Nashville pedal steel player. right? No, it doesn't. Not at all. And on that, actually, that's the one track that uh, doesn't feature Rick on bass. It's got our, our buddy James Lomenzo. Oh, Back to Megadeth. Playing some beautiful, really melodic bass on that track. I really love how he played on that. Of course, he's out with Megadeth now. He was out with John Fogarty previous. We can follow his career all, all the way back to Zach Wild, Black Label Society, all the way back to White Lion. Yeah. Just a great, great, underrated, all-around great bass player out of the John Entwistle school. And the Hideous Sun Demons. That was a great mm -hmm. album that... Yeah, see, you know, dude. Oh, yeah. Now, he talked about that, and we played some Hideous Sun Demons on my show when James was on my show. Oh, I got to go check that out. Yeah, so... I love that so album. So good that group was that no one's heard of. I know. And, oh. uh, on the drums on that is Jeff Bowders. Okay. From uh, Paul Gilbert. He's done a couple Paul Gilbert albums. Satriani, he does the, the Paul Gilbert boot camps. Oh, And nice. he played on, with Shakira. I've been lucky with... Uh, with the musicians that I've been playing with lately. And that's for my instrumental stuff. And that brings us to that, my little duet that I have with my lovely, my other half, Dinah Shirasaki, who a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people know and love her from her all female ACDC tribute band, Thund Her Struck. That's so great. We've been together like a couple decades and changed and played everywhere from LA to Desert Storm to Iraq. Wow. Ukraine. Open for Foreigner Journey and more. I mean, that's I incredible. I have a video on my, uh, I have a new a YouTube show premiering and there's a few videos already there and ready to be enjoyed. And the most recent being, uh, I accompanied her to a festival, the Moon Dance Festival last summer, my babe killing it on my YouTube channel, which is Music Lives Live Web Show. That's what it's called, Music Lives Live Web Show. We got a new single coming out. Okay. It's actually, I'm about to, as soon as we hang up, I'm going to spend the rest of the evening going through some vocal doubles, which means like in the chorus, in certain parts we doubled her vocal to make it thicker. Okay. Something very common in, in the vocal game. Most, right. Most horses that you hear are doubled. Sometimes the entire song, like all Ozzy doubles, every line he's ever sang has been doubled. Yeah. That's what that sound of his voice is doubling. So, and she did a, a low harmony. We've kind of put this song out in a beta test 
mix that we weren't totally happy with. It's called Gypsy Soul. We're happy with the song. We love it. But the song is on the mixing board over in Germany with a, a up and coming phenom, phenomenal mixer named uh, Luce Lammer. Okay. He's the gentleman that mixed David Elfson's new band, the, the Lucid. Okay. Yeah. We love the sound of that so much that uh, he's got that up on the board right now. We're sending over these extra vocals. And she did a low harmony, kind of a Stevie Nixie low harmony Ooh. that's kind of cool. So we have this song that, believe it or not, it begins on Dobro guitar. I'm, I love it. I, I'm a big Dobro aficionado. I'm a big Chris Whitley. Oh, I love Chris Whitley. Do you? Yes. This song was inspired by Chris Whitley. If you love Chris Whitley. I do. And Gypsy Soul is a song for you. That is I can't great. believe you've even heard of him. Oh my gosh, yeah. So cool. He's great, right? I mean, and so he has the one major, kind of like Holsworth, the one major label album that was produced by the guy who did Octoon Baby for you too. And that's the Big Sky Country. Right? Uh, yeah, but I like Din of Ecstasy. Law. That's Living with the Law. But Chris had a string of amazing albums of from you know, the acoustic raw dobro to electrified yeah. dobro and resonator guitar singer songwriter. I mean, yeah. for me, he's the Bob Dylan that I'll remember from my lifetime, like how they made Bob Dylan up to be right. I mean, mm -hmm. but Chris had a voice and he could play. Yeah. He could write, right, right, right. So good, man. So gypsy soul was a song that I wrote under the influence of Chris Whitley. And I've per actually performed it with another singer and it had totally different lyrics, same title, different lyrics, but Dinah I've known about here for years and years and years. And our paths have been crossing like ships in the night. And <laughs> one thing led to, to the next and we made a connection and I asked her to write the vocals for it. And the song kind of came out now not surprisingly, like Chris Whitley, Fleetwood Mac meets ACDC Man. with a funk vibe because there's a funky undertone, undercurrents to it. Oh, I think wow. it's a really cool song that a lot of people will really dig. I mean, it's for fans. If you dig Fleetwood Mac, ACDC, Chris Whitley, awesome. Ohio players, I mean, this song might be right up your alley. Off and you've got another tenniforgen.com. I can give you a URL for that. Oh, people. Good. It's Tennifer Jen is our duo name. The bassist, we're back with Rick Fierbachi on the bass. Shane Gallus on the drums, who's recorded with Shanker and Ingve. Wow. Vinnie Moore. He plays with a huge Japanese band, the Bees, B apostrophe ZS. They like sell out two nights in a row at Tokyo Dome, New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve day. And we've never heard of him in America. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I, I'm not familiar with so, him at all. But he's a beast. And he plays in another cool instrumental band called Cosmo Squad with uh, okay. great guitarist Jeff Coleman. who played with Glenn Hughes. Oh, okay. And yeah. others. So, yeah, we're very lucky with the musicians who are joining Dinah and me on this track and me on my instrumental tracks. And you've got another project that you're working on. We can't really talk yeah, yeah, about, yeah. but yeah, that's going to be coming out later in the year, early next year. That's, that's a mega project. I'm really excited for you guys to hear that. And we just can't say too much about that. 
And that's right. all I can say about that. Every musician in the band, Megadeth fans are going to love this project. That's and awesome. We can, we can tease it, I think, that much. Okay. And in the meantime, in between Gypsy Soul, and I'll give you the link. I, I mentioned we have a URL where you can watch for that. It's Tenifer Jen is the group. T-E-N-I-F-E-R. It's the hardening process for making metal. Okay. Hardening, hardening a heavy metal. <laughs> and Jen are like little angels, lesser angels that inspires to do things like dance and rock out, right? Right. So Tenifer Jen is the band. It's T-E-N-I-F-E-R-J-I-N-N.com. Right. Website already looks pretty spiffy. It's got the announcement about the single coming soon. And watch for that coming out. It should be out within the next couple of weeks, I hope. Awesome. I hope my friends were just looking for the perfect day and will service it to media. In the meantime, between Gypsy Soul and the uh, Mysterious Mega Project, I got another instrumental. The fourth one from Revolutions is going to be dropping for summer. It's a summery instrumental tune with a guest guitar. It's the first time I've had a guest lead guitar solo. Oh, and uh, joining me on the track, none other than my buddy and compadre Joe Holkstra. Oh, nice. From White Snake, Trans Siberian Orchestra, Night Ranger. And yeah. Like a hundred other bands. Who isn't it Joe playing with right yeah. now? <laughs> so he's already laid his solo and it's beautiful. Oh, man. The songs kind of grooves, kind of like a summery Van Halen, Warren D. Martini kind of groove. So I think. It's going to be that feel-good hit of the summer for people. Excellent. I oh, mean, I can't wait to hear it. Well, where can people f keep an eye on you and your mega project that's coming up that, and, and, you know, all the other projects that you're going to do? Is there one's main account that they can check out, a uh, social media or a website? I wish, man, but my GoDaddy URL just expired. Yeah. And you know, when your URL expires, they try to upcharge you to renew. Oh, geez. By like four times over some. So I'm going to have to let go of uh, all my familiar. Tenor for Jen's good to go. Okay. But I'm, this week, I'm going to be purchasing a couple new URLs. So here's how, here's how you find me. YouTube. Jeff Young. I okay. just gave you the uh, Music Lives Live web show. That's right. And on Facebook, I got Jeff Young. I got a band page, Jeff Young Six Strings Incorporated. Search me out on Bandcamp. That's where the three singles are for sale. We talked about Monsoon in the Flesh and Slow Burn. That was JeffYoungSongs.com. But if you click there now, you can, uh, you can buy that link for <laughs> an exorbitant amount of money. <laughs> But just watch my social media. My, I got a Twitter, Jeff Scott Young on Twitter. ReverbNation.com slash Guitar Ninja. That's where you can hear some of these old tracks. Even a track, there's a track there with Jeff Scott Soto singing lead vocal called Mr. Cool. Oh, It's cool. just an eight-track demo with drum machine. I really like the guitar sound, and it's a Tom Schultz rock man. And oh. Jeff actually liked the song so much he wanted to buy it from me, but I said, no way, Soto. <laughs> but, uh, and uh, the Broken yeah, Science, Ready for Action, Phil Linet, homage track is there, and some other unreleased and interesting tracks people can find on my ReverbNation.com slash Guitar Ninja. Just look, be looking around on my social media because I'll have a couple new URLs. And my radio show, Music Without Boundaries, 
which was jeffyoungjams.com. Just look for Music Without Boundaries, Google it, go on Spreaker. Mm-hmm. It's on every iTunes, Deezer, every place that puts out podcasts. Beautiful. Jeff Young's Music Without Boundaries. There's 11 years of shows That's in the amazing. archives. I've got guests ranging from Pat Travers to John Five to Steve Harris' daughter, Lauren Harris, to the current singer of Kansas, Ronnie Platt. One of their live videos is on my Music Lives Live web show YouTube channel. Go watch it. I was in the audience for their sold-out Beacon show in New York. Oh, nice. Beautiful performance, and I got, and some other cool performances on my uh, my channel. I'm going to be having a lot of cool guests, not just musicians, people from music industry, winemaking industry. Oh, nice. Just eclectic guests. I think you guys are going to like this show. Because uh, Rock and Roll Ain't Dead, Music Lives Live web show on YouTube. Thank you so much for spending so much time telling me some amazing stories. This has been a blast. It's been such a great time talking with you. I mean, your work is just amazing. First learned about you through the through Megadeth, which, and it's one of my favorite Megadeth albums. But listening to the stuff you've done afterwards is just as, as amazing. So thank you for spending so much time with me tonight. Cool, man. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you following the career. I, I wish more folks knew my works post Megadeth, but thanks to fellas just like you, fine upstanding citizens getting the word out. <laughs> Hope, hoping we're going to be rectifying that over the next eight months to a year here. Hopefully so, especially mm-hmm. with your next big project. I'm excited mm-hmm. to hear this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got four songs already sketched <sighs> out and the drummer's laying his tracks man and uh i mean the funny thing is like i wasn't aware of the drummer and singer because i don't follow the metal and the underground metal and hardcore world that much but as soon as i started telling people like my guy at dean guitars my dean rep knows both my drummer and my singer he's like no way dude are you oh that's awesome i'm so excited so so it's gonna be cool i think people are gonna really be surprised with this one. That's more why we don't want a bunch of people speculating and talking. And since everyone in the band is known, we'd rather just finish the album by, it's going to be an EP. We're hoping to have it done by summer, summer's end, and then have it out by end of the year, early next year. Oh, can't wait. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 